Hello, hello, everyone. My name is Priyak Juthani. I'm one of the co-hosts of Health News Around the World, which is a weekly podcast show that we host every week live, 10 a.m. Eastern time on the Application Clubhouse. We usually start with non-COVID-19 related stories, and this week there were a lot. The first one we chatted about was the influence of light on substrate metabolism. We then moved on to the international mystery of the hump. We then pivoted to a paralyzed man with a severed spine who was able to start walking again thanks to an implant. And then we ultimately pivoted into COVID-19 stories. And when we discussed COVID-19, we talked a bit about the effect of the vaccine on pediatric populations, which I believe has been thoroughly uh, not acknowledged enough. We then talked a bit about the importance of Pfizer and the fact that it actually has withdrawn its application to the FDA to approve two doses for kids under five and the repercussions of that. So all that and more on today's episode. So now let's get straight to the show. Pirak, are we ready? Air yeah, I think, time. Think we have a think we have a quorum here. So as we're getting everything ready to go here, um, uh, that was a little pre- premature on my part. Yeah, I was like, wow, that was like a little. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn it! I did it again. All right, well, that was pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, I have it now at the office. So we have like a, a like a physical air horn at the office, not like a old school one, but one of those buttons. Like, you know, like the, it looks like the Staples easy button, but we do it every time we make a sale now. So it's kind of so it's going uh, annoying off, for the It's going day. off all the time then. All the time. Yeah. Uh, the first story I wanted to jump into um, was this incredible work that was done uh, in uh, Diabetologica, which goes into detail of what happens with light. And I'm not sure if uh, and if uh, we're gonna pin the link I'll as pin always the link and tweet it thanks. out. And so you know, there's there's a lot of talk about the importance of light, and I will say that a lot of it doesn't have any evidence behind it. Uh, but this was the first study that that I've seen that has actually one of my endocrine colleagues sent it to me uh, to share this week, which was the influence of bright and dim light on your body's metabolism and how you actually expend your energy and specifically looking at the impact of that in insulin resistant individuals. So just to get everybody on the same page, there's been a lot of discussion previously around the natural light and dark cycle that humans are exposed to, you know, and how it affects our circadian rhythm. There's also some talk that if you mess with the circadian rhythm, it messes with your metabolism. There's actually a lot of studies showing that. But what people have not been able to successfully show in a trial setting, and by the way, this is a trial that was performed in the Netherlands, um, in a trial setting, is that if you affect and effectively use light as a treatment, it actually improves outcomes. And that was what was so interesting about this. So again, very small, small trial. And the reason why it was such a small group is because they were getting so much data on such a small group. So this still needs to be validated in a much broader study, but I have a feeling that that's going to happen after this one. So what they did, and what's exciting about this, is that they uh, simulated the light-dark cycle. So again, we know light is super important in synchronizing the circadian rhythm. We know that light at night actually affects glucose metabolism. We know that bright light in the morning affects metabolism specifically after you eat. But what was the key question of this study? Well, if we art- artificially provide light, 
at the right times and optimize it, can we change the way your body actually metabolizes glucose? I know Aram already knew the answer to this, but the, the medical establishment needs data, right? And so we have now very exciting data. So what they did was they literally put uh, a light source inside someone's house. I'm not kidding. And they use it like, like how we, you know, how we think about therapeutics. They literally had an exact amount of light at different times of the day and told the patients to sleep at a certain time of day. And what they found was that bright day, dim evening, which is how they're, how they're, and just for people that are super nerdy, that's 1250 lux in the day and zero lux at night. Uh, and dim evening is five lux. So very, very dim light. They found that it uh, reduced blood glucose before dinner. They found that actually reduced skin temperature before dinner, which is important. And I'll explain why it's so important. They showed that they increased energy expenditure. So your body was naturally spending more energy uh, after dinner. They found that melatonin secretion was increased in the evening. And they found that the sleeping metabolic rate. So when you were sleeping, you were guys, this is just with light. <laughs> and I found this study incredibly interesting. Uh, fascinatingly, what they found was when you flip it, and I feel bad for the people that flipped it on, they found that actually, uh, you were, uh, you were uh, storing more fats in your body, and that you were actually secreting less, uh, less sugar, so you're becoming more insulin resistant in your body. Now, I know that this is a study that probably should have been done years ago, but incredible study. I don't know if people had thoughts about this before we move on. Yeah, um, I'm actually curious, and I've just skimmed through the article real quick. Um, I don't see anything about blue light uh, being mentioned in the article and how that would um, I mean, we all know that blue light is needed during the day, uh, and uh, but people are spending too much time at night on 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 smartphones and stuff like that if they're not using the the the, uh, the yellow light um, functions of their phone and stuff like that. Um, but I, I'm I'm curious why they didn't include that, or if that's just a completely oh, different study. It's a I myth. Mean, that's that's, that's a why. It's a myth, a myth so, really? So, yeah. So uh, I actually, it's as if you were. Uh, you were reading my tweets this week, which is great. Uh, so, uh, Prerak, I don't know if you have that. I'll, I'll share it because uh, someone actually asked me about this. So I'm going to pin this link so people can read. This is from data from the Cleveland Clinic that they aggregated, but other people as well. So, um, and again, if people want me to post the other article as well, just uh, uh, go to our Twitter and you can you can find it. So I actually got this question this week, <laughs> so random. And that's why I was so interested in this light concept, Jeff. Exactly why, that was the first thing that I was thinking about. And then actually my sister uh, asked me about this question this week. And she said, you know, should I get blue light glasses that filter out blue light? Uh, and I actually went through the rabbit hole. So it makes sense, right? We know blue light. It sounds like a good solution. Uh, and blue light filters, uh, you know, could prevent digital eye strain and actually improve your circadian rhythm, but the data shows otherwise. And in fact, it's not about blue light itself. It's uh, something called computer vision syndrome, which is what you're talking about. And actually, um, computer vision syndrome is a real problem in this country. We, uh, I, I reached out to one of my friends who's a physical therapist, and she's like, oh my God, we see it all the time. 
And that's actually what's affecting it. People keep blaming blue light, but actually uh, multiple studies have shown that interventions on blue light do not work. So hopefully that answers your question. If you do have a history of migraines, however, there is a filter-based uh, glasses that actually do work for people that have chronic migraine. And it's like P451 or something, or something, 541. 451 might be something completely different. But uh, it's a certain type of filter. I can find that information and tweet it out later. But I just wanted to say that the blue light myth is real uh, in the sense that the, the myth itself is not, uh, has not been proven to be true. And even if we know, even if we know that blue light affects circadian rhythms, interventions towards blue light have not worked. And I think that's an important distinction. There are some decent sized studies showing that blue light does affect circadian rhythm, but we know that blue light alone being removed does not remove the impact of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, Donish, uh, real quick. I think it's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that article. I mean, you know, as, as physicians, we think about the dawn effect on patients with diabetes at, at, at a higher sugar level at night. Uh, also, the Samoji effect when patients end up having compensatory growth hormone increase during the night. But tying that to this with the circadian rhythm for patients that are not technically diabetic, but uh, they were randomized in this study is very interesting, kind of adds to that. So thanks for sharing, Donish. And uh, Dr. Donish, as you know, uh, my not only fascination, but kind of obsession with uh, uh, natural rhythms, circadian rhythms, and uh, the natural methods to prevent disease. Uh, my friend in England uh, did this study along with her colleagues several, um, perhaps more than a couple of years ago, uh, but she's a sleep specialist, and her study was more focused in terms of how sleep and wake cycle affect uh, people's um, weight, obesity, uh, and uh, diabetic uh, kind of predispositions. Um, this study is kind of unique because it's focused in terms of uh, um, just insulin uh, production and how the metabolism is being affected. But the study um, that connects uh, the circadian rhythm and the light with your sleep and um, those studies are there for a long time. Um, and uh, her, according to her recommendation, uh, we as human beings require at least 50,000 lux during the day for our brain to recognize, to start producing high level of energy in the morning during the day throughout. So spending your uh, time outside in the sun for five to 10 minutes with bright sunlight is absolutely crucial and important for all these uh, rhythms and uh, metabolic processes to uh, align with the circadian uh, rhythm uh, for positive health benefits. Um, um, and uh, those studies, uh, the sleep studies, uh, indicate the connection between um, uh, not only diabetic propensities, but uh, the weight gain and stress-based hormonal release, uh, which is uh, kind of uh, affect, uh, affecting the level of cortisol in the morning and how that impact uh, the health negatively. So many studies are uh, indicative of these findings previously, especially in European countries. But I'm glad to see that um, this study is, uh, you know, now focusing on diabetes and um, how we can just align our circadian rhythm, sleep well, increase our um, uh, association with the light and day cycle. Uh, to prevent these negative impact on our body. Yeah, no, and uh, again, just to be clear, even the authors mentioned that there is a di direct connection previously shown between how 
you internally live with your circadian rhythm and your behavior associated with it. What is incredibly exciting to me about this study specifically is the use of light as a therapeutic. And they actually you did a clinical trial, like Chandler said, which I think is incredibly interesting because now we can start thinking about light, for example. If you've lived in Alaska, uh, you know that you don't have that choice. Uh, if you live in St. Louis right now, the circadian rhythm is not great. Uh, you know, we have uh, weird, we have very short days, decently long nights. And so the point is that thinking about uh, what you can do naturally, like you said, Aram, and then even if, if you don't have access to it naturally, thinking about it as a therapeutic, imagine for diabetics, instead of just throwing them on, on a bunch of medications, if you're a pre-diabetic, which also Chandler mentioned in the study, they saw with healthy volunteers, even they had some positive effects. And so the, I think what we're going to see from this is that people are actually going to do light-based interventions, even if it's art. And the other big thing, Aaron, that you mentioned was about natural daylight. This is one of the first studies that shows specifically the impact of artificial daylight at a very low lux, like you mentioned. I mean, the the lux is a measure of, uh, of brightness for people that don't know this. And at 1250 lux, they were able to see this impact. So incredibly interesting. You know, people talk about digital therapeutics. Um, I think we're going to see now this new uh, wave of other types of therapeutics. Francine, did you have a thought? I did. When my daughter went to Cornell, you know, oh, let me preface this. I live in Arizona. Phoenix is very light and we get plenty of sunlight. When my daughter went to college, she chose Cornell, which was the the college that I had gone to, but she didn't realize that having grown up in Arizona, she was going to have a different reaction to it than I had because I grew up in New York City. So she got there and she was very depressed. And I was looking up things that I could do to help her out. And I finally found this thing called a light box. And, I, you know, I said, <laughs> so I... I said, okay, we're going to try this because I think you have something called, at the time, it was called seasonal affective oh, disorder. Oh, yeah, it's still called that, yeah. Oh, anyway, we sent her a light box, and she stared at the light box every day, and it really did help. So light therapy isn't new. No, I know, but yeah. it hasn't had evidence, it's... and that's the issue. The evidence of actual, again, there are people that are quote unquote believers. What we need more of in these incredible alternative interventions is more evidence. And I think that that's what I'm, I always keep saying, sure. Have we known that light therapy, I mean, like it's part of Ayurvedic medicine. It's been around for a long time, but the, the point is just that what I'm excited about. And also the other big thing about this story that's really exciting is how do you now think about artificial light in work settings? Because if you, if, if any of us have worked in the hospital, uh, the light there is not great. Uh, it's really bad for your circadian rhythm. And that's a, that, that could explain why uh, so many uh, healthcare workers start developing, uh, you know, uh, insulin resistance, even if they are trying their best to stay healthy. So really interesting study, super excited about it. I think we have another one, right? We back next. It's another interesting one. Yeah, we do. Uh, Dr. Danish, one more point. There is like a light, uh, uh, which is, 
simulating the sunrise and it's available and red light therapy also that all my friend uses she's a sleep specialist uh, for her patient and i've used it in my patients as well that is very useful another connection is for the people in space because yesterday in my space medicine room we were discussing how the absence of uh, regular circadian rhythm affects astronauts health negatively in space because they go through this circadian um uh, not the circadian the solar cycle every 90 minutes uh, which kind of affects their uh, metabolism and their immune system negatively and also psychological health so for them uh, we were discussing actually yesterday the option of artificial lighting indoors that would mimic the regular sunrise and sunset so they may uh, feel the benefits and uh, that's why this study is very significant yeah, hey, Donich, I don't want to just kind of really quick uh, compare to what Dr. Francine said. You know, so as we all know, seasonal affective disorder has improved even if you're in the northern hemisphere, i.e. Alaska, Norway, Sweden. But in this study, because patients with diabetes mellitus, we had this phenomenon called the dawn phenomenon, where, where it's dark, their sugar levels are high. And we have this effect called a Samoji effect, where patients' sugar level goes up because uh, your body's growth hormone and catecholamines go up. And now we actually have data that you can actually modify the light. And it's not just a phenomenon. We actually have data. So that's why I just want to kind of capsize everything uh, back to what you were saying, Donish. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, you know, what's, what's interesting is, is how, how we're starting to see study designs that are taking things that they're, look, alternative therapies, some of them work. The hard part is it's really hard to know what works and what doesn't work. And the more that we see physicians open their minds and start to do evidence-based medicine based on alternative therapies that people swear by, the more we're going to see this industry continue to flourish and we're gonna see people get access to alternative therapies and again, we all know that there are people that will swear by certain things uh, and there's just zero evidence for it, right? But at the same time, it doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. It just means we need to start studying it. So I, I applaud people. I mean, if you look through this, this was an actual clinical trial. Again, very small. Uh, I wish it was bigger. It's, you know, considered, you know, I would say mid to, mid to moderately high evidence, but uh, just, you know, exciting in terms of, of where we're going. So uh, the next story that we have is about this really talking about mysteries, uh, uh, this really interesting story out of the Financial Times. I don't know if you all saw this, but if you can pin it up, uh, uh, yeah, just did. Uh, so it's about this mystery of the hum. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm going to try to... And I, I'm having some trouble accessing yeah, it. I don't I'm know gonna, if Financial Times is not working. I'm going to try to find a better link for it. But um, in the meantime, I can also summarize it. Or you can start summarizing it, and I can also link another vid. Another no, no, I'm going to look for the other one. Why don't you start? Okay, great. So if you have been on Twitter this week, I think we may have a biased view of it because our Twitter is so focused on different types of health news that we get different mysteries as right as they appear. Um, and so the Financial Times has published this piece on, on this thing called the hum, which is really odd, and it's exactly what it sounds like. And it's an international mystery because a lot of people have been hearing it. So 
It's this noise that individuals claim to hear. And initially it was just one individual who had this experience. And then she went online and made a Facebook group saying, Hey, I hear this thing literally every night before I go to sleep. I can't sleep. It keeps me awake. It's, it's very debilitating. I don't know what's going on. And then she found out that, you know, this was a international thing that was happening. It wasn't just in her town. It was happening in Canada. It was happening in the U.S. and a lot of different places and to a lot of different individuals. And the particular individual they talk about in this story, she could hear this hum, but her, her husband and son couldn't hear it. And, you know, sound is an interesting thing. We can hear, you know, certain levels of decibels, but we actually can't hear sound below a certain frequency and we can't hear sound above a certain frequency. And actually it's been shown that sound above a certain frequency it's really high. Usually we can't even approach it, but it can kill us. And sounds below a certain frequency um, are really quite low that even if they, even if we can't hear them, they can still impact us because they impact our, um, the, the circadian rhythm, so to speak, the ability of our blood to flow, all of those things. So after this came out and there has been found to have this huge community online of people hearing this hum, speculation has like run wild, right? Like individuals have been saying, it's a mother earth warning us of an impending catastrophe. It's the breaking of the seventh seal. It's ghosts. Um, some, some, there's few, uh, very few academic studies in this field. Um, and so there's even, can I just tell you what I think it is? Yeah, go ahead, please. You're the ears, ear, nose, throat doctor. Too, doctor <laughs> I, I was, I was thinking about this and I was like, I wonder if it's just tinnitus. Tinnitus. Yes. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> and I was like, you know, so, so uh, for people that don't know, uh, as you, you know, for people, uh, there's a significantly large community out there that, uh, that suffers from tinnitus and they don't get a diagnosis because, you know, they may not have associated hearing loss or any other uh, uh, symptoms. But what's really interesting is the low frequency hum is like one of the most common forms of, of, of uh, tinnitus that gets undiagnosed. And what I mean by that is, uh, so usually when people get tinnitus, it tends to be decently high frequency because as you age, you start losing hearing in the higher frequencies, okay? So uh, to compensate for that, the, the circuit in your head starts making the sounds that your head doesn't hear anymore. It's called psychofrequency tuning. And there's a lot of other, I'm not an audiologist, so I will not go too detailed into this. But, uh, but the thing that's really interesting is that that low frequency humming, if you, uh, that means that you may have to have some form of low frequency loss, which only happens if you were like, you know, either have conductive hearing loss at the low frequencies or you were exposed to something that was low frequency. So I can see how this is an underdiagnosed tinnitus. But again, maybe there's something that they know that we don't know. I don't want to say one thing it or the other. But it's Havana syndrome. When you lose the hair in the organ of Cordy or the hair quality decreases, uh, that's when you start uh, having the symptom of tinnitus. So your inner ear that holds that organ of Cordy with small electrical, the hair that con uh, converts the sound wave to the electrical signal, uh, I think that's the well. That's that's hair loss. You're talking about that sensory neural uh, hearing loss. That's that's the traditional pathway of sensory neural hearing loss. Tinnitus actually is not happening in the inner ear. Tinnitus is happening, and this is, again, I will tell you that there are uh, the mechanism of tinnitus is decently understood now. So tinnitus is your brain's reaction, Aram, to that hearing loss. You're absolutely right. So there is the hearing loss may be a triggering factor, but 
not everybody that is hearing loss actually has tinnitus. And, no, no, uh, I'm saying yeah, that tinnitus so, is a symptom of the of pathology starting at the organ of cordy here. Yeah, but that's also hearing loss. So that's how you lose. So sensory neural hearing loss is what you're talking about. That's not tinnitus. I just want to be clear. Again, uh, sorry, just want to be 100% clear. Since I studied this, I can tell you, like, the organ of cordy hair loss is literally what sensory neural hearing loss is. And so, um, anyways, the, the point here is tinnitus is your brain. Our brains are so nuts. Sorry, uh, wrong use of words. But I was going to say our brains, the way that we react to hearing loss, for some people, is it turns on a circuit and it just keeps running that circuit as if you're hearing something when you're not because you lost that hair cell. And so I just want to be clear, it's not the hair cell loss itself. It's our brain's reaction to it. That's why some people can lose hair cells, but not develop tinnitus. I just want to be very, very clear about that. So, um, so yeah, this is a really interesting story. I wonder why in this entire story, Prerak, they didn't mention tinnitus once. I was very surprised by that, actually. It didn't mention any real diagnosis either. And, and to Dr. Francine's point, um, actually in the Financial Times story, they did mention that one of the reasons why this was so alluring is because it resembles something like the unexplained Havana syndrome, which is, you know, it's like this air of ridiculous that we don't necessarily know what's happening. And it's not helped by the fact that, you know, there's new stories of the recording that have turned out to be like the mating call of a cricket, apparently. <laughs> so they've like, they, there's clearly a lot of like random misinformation on top of, on top of people who are actually suffering with this and, and gravely being, um, you know, affected by it. And so I'm glad it's, uh, it's brought, uh, I'm glad it's gotten some news coverage, but also, unfortunately, there's a lot of like leads that are taking us along the wrong way, essentially. Yeah. And uh, again, you know, if you do suffer, if you start hearing these sounds, this hum, please go see an audiologist so you can get, get a hearing test. Uh, sometimes tinnitus can actually be a very early marker of hearing loss. And so uh, if anybody does have hearing loss, they'll probably agree that they even hear tinnitus themselves. Uh, uh, the, other, the other big thing, sorry, PSA, pre-rack, but if you hear sort of like this pulsing tinnitus, please go to an audiologist. <laughs> That is an important one to go to an audiologist about. So if you hear like this pulse, what we call pulsatile tinnitus, you should definitely get checked. It might be nothing, but it could be something. All right. So sorry, just. Uh, but uh, a lot of uh, tinnitus is uh, not uh, diagnosed at an audiologist. Exactly. Because, uh, yeah. And uh, Dr. Danish, I've also worked in ENT for uh, a while. So. <laughs> That's great. But that w the way you explained tinnitus was incorrect. So the, the, the point of tinnitus is that the organ of Gordy hair cells there's only one sort of uh, uh, pathology associated with organ of cordy hair cells, which is about phase shift delay. But even that has been completely disproven. I can send you a million studies on this. I literally did research on this. And so uh, I'm happy to uh, go toe to toe on this. But uh, since it was my specialty, I'm happy to uh, mention it more. But again, the, there's a lot of studies showing that it's actually and so for people that don't understand what tinnitus is, you know, ringing in the ear that people talk about, that's what is uh, the colloquial term for tinnitus. And it's not, has, it's not specifically related to the hair cells. That was something that was believed like 30 years ago. Now what we know is it's actually your brain's response to the hair cells. So your brain puts together a circuit that actually runs that sound in your brain, even though it does not have negative feedback at the hair cell level. And so it's, it, you know, it's, it's, that's the key to tinnitus. So I just wanted to make sure that people understand it's not, uh, there's not something crazy going on in your ear. 
It's more about your brain's response to what happened in your ear. And usually uh, at an audiologist, what they can find is, uh, is hearing loss. I'm not so worried about tinnitus because even an ENT can't do much for tinnitus. But if you have hearing loss, you can get augmentation of hearing, which then can reduce the tinnitus because you can hear better at that frequency. And so that was the point. So, okay, guys, uh, let's keep moving. Prereq, next story. Yeah, definitely. So the next story we have, um, you know, we don't like just talking about the mysteries and the things that make us sad. We also like to talk about some bright things. And there were quite a lot of good news this last week. The first one is this. This one was actually shared a lot. And it's actually really interesting because it's a very sad story that turns a little bit more happy. Um, it says paralyzed man with severed spine walks thanks to implant. We got several people who shared this with us. And I'm pretty pumped about it because if you read this news article, there's actually an entire nature study behind it that actually talks about the general procedure that was used. It was called epidural electric, electrical stimulation. And so let's just talk a bit about the way the spinal cord works, right? So when you touch something, um, the sensation of touching something enters in through your arm, goes to your spinal cord, and then goes to your brain to tell you you're touching something. And then if you're uh, smart, like uh, most of the people in this room, you will say like, I'm touching a doorknob or whatever it is. And you'll kind of piece things together. When your spinal cord gets injured, that's usually when you can have things like uh, quadriplegia and paraplegia, which means that you now you can't even move your arm. And let alone if you were to move your arm, you can't really um, take control of it. So there was a paralyzed man who had a, a severed spinal cord, and that usually leads to this inability to walk because if your spinal cord is injured above the level at which it innervates your legs, then you won't be able to use your legs because the spinal cord uh, below those regions is not working. But this is the first time that someone who has had a complete cut to their spinal cord has like finally been able to walk freely. Uh, again, very like big news. Uh, and the way this works is that they actually have an implant and the implant is placed in the epidural uh, space, basically. Uh, and it's placed on the epidura, which is that there's three layers surrounding the spinal cord. One of them is the dura. And that basically enhances the signals that are being sent out to your nerves. And that essentially allows this individual to walk. Uh, and this person, you know, he got into a motorcycle accident. And that's what led to his inability to walk after this uh, injury. And now he has been able to walk. So far, nine people have received the implant and regained the ability to walk. None of them use it to help them walk in their everyday lives because it's too complicated at this stage. So instead, they use it to practice walking, which exercises their muscles, improves their health, and often restores a bit of movement. Because one of the other things about the brain that's really impressive is that's very plastic. So when you start doing something and the brain sees that it's potentially possible, it does a little bit of helping along and sometimes restores a bit of that function that you lost on your own. So... Did it, I know a lot of people on stage potentially may have read this story. Any thoughts from anyone, Dr. Donish? What were your thoughts on this? Oh, it's just exciting. Again, we're, we're seeing the, I mean, uh, not to get too theoretical here, but we're seeing the singularity between man and machine. And I think it's going to be exciting to see how, how this goes. Yeah, and within, it said within a single day, activity-specific simulation programs enabled three, in, well, this is in the nature study that I'm reading. So it's used on nine total, but in the nature study, it says within a single day, activity-specific stimulation programs enabled three individuals to stand, walk, cycle, swim, and control trunk movements. So basically, this aspect of neurohabilitation, neurorehabilitation, uh, to improve movement and restore activities is a realistic path to support everyday mobility at this point. Uh, very, very 
exciting, particularly because I remember in my neuro rotation, this sort of like neuro ish, neural issues can be really, really saddening and definitely a huge hindrance to quality of life. Dr. Francine? Yeah, prereq, I wanted to know, do they say anything about why it's complicated? Because I know that they put spinal implants into people all the time, you know, sometimes because they have back pain. And I want to know what's complicated. Let me jump into the study a bit and see if I can find a better answer. But I saw Dr. Pak-Tang and Nia as well. Go ahead, Dr. Yeah, hey, it's Dr. Pak-Tang here. Wow, I'm like very reading into this article that you posted. Um, the reason that it's, so you're right, Dr. Francine, there are neural simulators um, placed into the spine. There, there we, we use spinal implants for a lot of different things. Um, most commonly pain control, that's like typically what a lot of people know it for. Um, this is this is incredible. I'm very excited about this because, um, and in one day that, oh my gosh, like I'm so excited for my patients because I have so many patients in the emergency room, as you can imagine, that either have um, so sadly severed their spinal cord, like right then and there because of the, tra the acute trauma that I'm taking care of them for, or um, even more sadly, in a way, uh, my patients that come back all the time from complications because they're um, quadriplegic, right, or uh, paraplegic. So this makes me very, very excited for, for patients worldwide. Um, this, is, this is very complicated because you're talking about patients who have completely severed the nerves. And this guy, I'm reading a little bit on this. It's hard in Clubhouse, I guess. They, they need to make a move to safari like thing easier, but um, then the copy paste. But uh, the, the, like this guy was, had it severed five years ago. So those are complete, like this is talking, well, this gives a lot of insight to nerves, right? Like things that are use it or lose it are muscles, right? So that you really like the muscles, um, if you don't use them, they, wither down. Um, so if you'll see like people that are um, paraplegic, they have their muscle, their legs are really skinny. And um, because the muscle, it, it whittles down, it's use it or lose it. And the bottom part of the spinal cord, this makes me excited because that means that there's still quite a lot of really good healthy nerve there because this guy had his spinal cord severed five years ago. Um, so that tells me a lot as a physician about just the health of the rest of the spinal cord and the nerves and like all this stuff. It's like, vi I, I'm very excited about this, as you can tell. Um, but it's complicated because you're talking about attaching the top part, the healthier part with the bottom part that it was cut off from, which we, which at least I assumed was damaged. And you're talking about reconnecting them through this implant. That's why it's so complicated. Um, and so it, this is very exciting. I, and just so to be very clear on that point, uh, uh, you know, that Dr. Pak Teng, uh, it's so complicated that even with these implants, they're not able to do like daily walking yet. So yeah. what, 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 what's, really, what's really nuts about this is uh, the ability to stimulate in an effective way is still very early. But the thing that's really exciting for the, for the team uh, that's working on this is how this could potentially work in concert. Oh, I'm gonna, Rachel. I'm gonna uh, mute you for a second here. Uh, but the uh, the way that with nerve regeneration, which is the the big wave that's happening in uh, neurospine 
uh, nerve regeneration technology, one of the biggest challenges of the nerves actually are not able to elicit a strong enough nerval impulse. Uh, nervous imp and so this actually implant could take that information, amplify it, and send it to the lower motor neurons. It's incredibly exciting. And I agree with Dr. Pakteng. If you've seen it before, uh, uh, you understand we would see it at the cervical spine. It's just an incredibly uh, sad thing to see. So this is, and, and uh, I'm really impressed by this paralyzed man. If you if you watch what he's doing, it's it's nuts the amount of effort and work that goes and the human result. Uh, yeah. But you know, going back and to, then combining uh, to, it with to, external, right? The technology exactly. that we already have for external um, devices to help people walk, and the incredible AI that I've been able to see of that connecting that from the brain. Say, so like from the, a lot of people are working on a uh, brain impulse to go to machines, like external wearing things on your legs, for example, like braces that can connect with your brain and your brain can tell the brace what to do so it can help you walk. Man, this this technology that's shared, plus that other external, people like, oh, I'm very excited because maybe these people can walk again, like and have actual, Real lot like walking lives again. It's very exciting. I'm freaking out over here. And Dr. Peck, I'm freaking out too because most of these people that get in these kinds of accidents are young. So it's like they have the better part of their. It's not like the ones that they put in you for a pain block because you're 70 and your back is given out. But like these, these are very often teenagers or people in their 20s and 30s who have trauma from you know car accidents or motorcycle accidents or athletic accidents and this really would change you know it's like 50 60 years of their lives and so I was um, actually... i'm very excited about oh, this Sorry, ahead, ahead, uh, very excited about this uh, um, news. Again, um, there is uh, the research study uh, that concluded on January 22nd uh, on muscular contraction and ele electronically stimulating muscles to regenerate um, the muscles, uh, the muscle loss that is experienced in space. And uh, we were uh, also thinking uh, combining those kind of uh, modality of muscular regeneration with this, uh, uh, you know, spinal um, implant uh, to develop the muscles. Uh, combination of this technology may provide uh, almost to a normal uh, uh, kind of a mobility in such patients. So very exciting. And um, I was just going to say for Dr. Pak Tang, if you want the full nature study, and and for anyone actually interested in the the intense. Uh, scientific study behind this news article. I also tweeted that out on our Twitter um, just to kind of show you if anyone wants to do a huge deep dive as to why this might be a little different. Um, and I did do a brief insight into why this is so different from the other spinal implants. The first one is um, the fact that, you know, those are usually used to stabilize the spine, but in this case, you have a completely, you know, no, no, not functional spine. Uh, so I can only imagine that that may change the functionality and what we were trying to accomplish. Um, so excellent. Cool. So some good news there, but it's great now that we have covered some good news. I think it's fair to think about some other things that can be improved, right, Dr. Dunn? Oh, man. I'm like Dr. getting Danish, a little bit more. Um, yeah, actually, yeah, just two sentences. I think the, the significance of this is that um, um, the, this stimulation has to be exact. So you, don't, you, you want to stimulate um, um, 
the ventral, not the dorsal. Um, that was, if I understand correctly, that was where, yeah. why this whole, you know, stimulation is so important. Uh, it's so different from any previous such uh, kind of a treatment. 100%. And I think that's what, again, the, the nuances here, I really wish my uh, co-founder who did a PhD in neural engineering, I could bring him up, but he's not responding, probably because I've been bothering him all week. But uh, he... Uh, uh, he was really excited about this as well. So, um, you know, this next story that I just pinned, I'm just going to say that some people are not going to like it, um, but the data is what it is. And again, um, decently high quality data, but we can't actually access the study yet because it has not been published yet. Uh, so this is truly a preprint, as preprint as they get. But uh, it's a story at the University of Colorado. Uh, in Aurora. Uh, so it's a Colorado study. Surprise, surprise. They have a lot of data on cannabis. Um, and the study was looking at cannabis, which for people that don't know, and you can go to this link and see, they'll give you all the information around it. Uh, it's the most commonly used drug in the United States. Um, people have not known about cannabis use disorder, but it is a new uh, classification. Um, you know, I can go into what we mean exactly by cannabis use disorder, but anything that's in that's been classified by uh, our colleagues, usually the number one thing that you have to keep in mind is that it's the use of cannabis in this situation uh, leads to dysfunction. So the inability to fulfill work or school tasks, uh, withdrawing from social, occupational, or recreational activities, and what's really uh, you know want to be very clear is three in ten of ten people use cannabis. Uh, uh, qualify as having cannabis use disorder, and that's about four million people. So again, I, I'm, I'm saying that you know recreational cannabis is very, very different. Again, I'm giving like disclaimer, 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 because I know that I'm about to get a lot of people. It's like, oh, cannabis is you know, uh, you know, the best thing in the world, which is just you know not always true. Nothing is perfect. And so what these scientists did was they used the national inpatient sample database to identify 161,000 plus people. Uh, most of them young, uh, and they looked between October 2015 and October and, and 2017, and they looked at people who had a previous history of stroke. Now, to give some people context, there was a pretty high-profile study that showed that uh, the use of cannabis in very, very high amounts did increase risk of TIA, which is a, uh, uh, which is a transient ischemic attack or a transient stroke, uh, a stroke-like event, uh, but not directly in terms of increasing the, the risk of stroke. And I want to be clear that the data showed that, uh, and, and it was, it was uh, perhaps statistically significant on the TIA, maybe not as clinically significant. And I can go into what that means. But uh, this study looked at people that had previously had a stroke or a TIA, uh, and they looked at the, the risk of a recurrent stroke. So let's say that you've had this transient ischemic attack which some people will refer to, and you know, for the for the older physicians like myself, it, was, it used to be called a sentinel event. Which is, if you get a TIA, there's a higher risk of getting a stroke anyway. Uh, it's sort of like a a little your body saying, "Hey, calm down. Uh, you got to take care of this." Uh, so a TIA is not a small thing. It's a pretty big event. And um, what they found was that people with previous TIA actually had a fifty percent increase 
and stroke or a recurrent TIA if they were uh, if they classified as cannabis use disorder patients. So if anybody tells you that cannabis has nothing bad about it, first of all, you know, eating chocolate can be bad for you, right? We know uh, anything can be bad for you in excess. But what's really nuts is three out of 10 people who are actively using cannabis are not using it just recreationally. They may qualify for cannabis use disorder, which means that they have an increased risk. I think more studies need to be looked at to determine whether the cerebrovascular accident uh, connection with cannabis continues, you know, the, more and more data comes, but we need to keep an eye on this. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I've, uh, I've prescribed cannabis for patients before. Uh, this is not something that I'm like, oh, all cannabis is bad. But what I am going to say is that nothing comes without some, even with the most benefits, it can come with risks. So I don't know if people wanted to weigh in on this. The study is a pretty broad study. Um, and I would say it's more of a prevalent study than a intervention or a high quality study. So, you know, still needs to be evaluated. Uh, but wanted to open up to the floor. Pakteng? Oh, yeah. You know, so I, I'm a physician. I practice in New Jersey. We just passed recreational marijuana, uh, which I agree with. Um, but I get very worried because I talk. Actually, when I go to emergency medicine conferences in the U.S., um, these are the, canna the cannabis um talks are the ones i always go to because it's my smartest colleagues that are working in colorado etc um or even just interacting with the colleagues where mar recreational marijuana has been uh passed for a long time and it's because they are seeing a lot of related er visits um the typical one i see is hyperemesis syndrome, where you basically, uh, if you smoke too much weed every day, smoke weed every day, um, that you can have this syndrome to vomit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't not quote um, the new dog when I do that. But um, the my colleagues in Colorado, man, in the emergency room, they're seeing this a lot. So anecdotally, they saw this a lot, um, and they had suspicions that it was related to marijuana use um and and yeah i mean i'll say um from just like an observational wise people were seeing this for a long time so that's why you're going to see a flurry of studies similar to this coming out soon um they like my colleagues have been uh talking about this at conferences emergency medicine conferences because obviously that's where people show up for uh strokes and tias uh we've been talking about this for at least I want to say at least six years. Yeah, and the studies have followed the conversation. And yeah, so, and they're getting just better. Just so people know, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a really big one about to be published, like probably in the next six to eight months. Uh, Aram, did you have a comment? Sorry, I saw you flashing. Uh, yes, Doctor uh, Danish, I agree with Doctor Peck Tang. Uh, the psychiatrist colleagues have been, um, you know, warning. Uh, about the use of cannabis and associated neuropsychiatric disorders and dependence and all these syndromes. So yes, these studies are really needed for us to uh, clearly see uh, use case scenario and uh, pros versus cons because um, this uh, cannabis use is not uh, very harmless and have severe consequences. 
Did anybody else want to weigh in? The only thing I was going to say is, uh, so why is this so important? I mean, strokes in young people are super rare, right? Well, the actual data shows that stroke in young patients is rising at a rapid clip. The people will be surprised to hear, and this is kind of nuts. And again, Dr. Bang Tang, you're probably seeing this, and it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. We're seeing, seeing 10 so to 15 percent. 10 to 15 percent of strokes are now in 18 to 45 year olds. That's nuts. I, I don't know if people realize how crazy that is. That number used to be way lower, less than 10 years ago, and we're we're not sure why. Actually, I I know that partially it's with obesity. Uh, the obesity epidemic in young people. We're also seeing it related to things COVID. Uh, like COVID, exactly. But, uh, uh, but you know, it's just um, uh, to lose so much of your life at such, a, such an early, uh, so much functionality at such an early you know, age is, is uh, quite frightening. Uh, Dr. Erica, did you have a thought there? Yeah, I was just going to comment. Um, I'm in Michigan. We've had... Um, medical marijuana probably for eight to ten years i think um and then recreational for at least six i think i live within a mile of um i'm in ann arbor so uh hash bash started here on the college campus so we're pretty uh free and liberal with cannabis um i live within a mile of six dispensaries i think um from my house um but because i'm at the va um you know i can't prescribe advise you know, I'm a federal employee, um, but obviously we talk about it with our patients a lot. And I think that the congressional bill is still held up um, for the VA to research um, cannabis, which I think would be really, really helpful, obviously, given the repository of information that the VA has and the access to millions of patients. Um, so I just think it, it, we're really doing a disservice to our patients as far as um, you know, my inability, not necessarily to prescribe because getting, um, getting it is very easy here, but to be able to advise and sort of integrate it formally into their therapeutic plan. Um, because many of the patients who are using it want it to be a part of their plan formally um, for their, you know, uh, psychiatric diagnoses or their chronic pain complaint. Many, many of our patients use it in, in lieu of opioids um, and, and so just to be able to formally integrate it in part of their care planning would be really helpful, but then also researching these long-term effects and then having that repository of information from the VA. So I really, really hopeful that something is done to allow the VA to use that data um, from so many patients who are using um, marijuana, um, but also sort of the CBD compounds and the THC compounds. I mean, they're just, it's just everywhere here. Um, and I, I think it would be really helpful if we could just um, have access to that. Ashley, did you have a Yeah, thought? I just want to piggyback on that. I think that's really what's at the core and why, like, I want to, you know, with this study and just be able to dive in deeper. There's so many interactions, drug nutrient, you know, just even in the CBD space as well as in the cannabis space. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to stop a drug, but when we're able to actually have these conversations, we can say, okay, that one, you know, from a P450 standpoint, this means that this is going to stay in your system longer, or this is going to not be as effective. And I think it's, we're really hamstrung there. So it gets larger into policy, but it also has me just, you know, really looking at a stroke study. It's like, there's so many other factors that I want to, would want to evaluate of the, the participants. Um, you brought up several of them, Dr. Donish, but just echoing, you know, following up on what 
uh, she was just saying, I think it's really hamstringing us to do effective care, which could significantly reduce long-term uh, consequences. Doug, did you have, uh, did you want? Uh, yeah, um, as you know, I'm RN case manager. So, you know, as a stroke study, I, I'm not, I mean, the, I think there needs to be more information, you know, along with the patient, are they the obesity, you know, their hypercholesterolemia, everything else needs to be factored in to these things. And, and to anecdotally say it's, you know, with marijuana use, and then was the marijuana smoked or was it, um, were they taking edibles or something like that? So there's there's so much more missing information on this that yeah. And this study, just to be clear, Doug, that's a very good point. So they took in the forty eight percent numbers based on uh, ruling out confounding factors, and so they did look at that specifically. Uh, they had such a huge database. I'm you know I'm sure they did a great job of it. I think uh, the bigger uh, question that you brought up is the route and the mechanism. You are one hundred percent right. Uh, uh, for anybody that, uh, uh, that, that knows, uh, that, that the, how do I say this in a very professional way that the release of cannabis into your body is very different when you do edibles versus smoking versus other forms. So Doug, you are 100% right. I don't think they mentioned that. And again, we can't access the original study because they're going to present it at, uh, at a conference, I think in a month or so. So we'll have to And I'd like to it. piggyback off what Dr. Erica says. It's, you know, there's so much to be done in re not have these, you know, restrictions and just let the medical society look at, you know, a patient's use or into that. Are they going to use um, and that's how we're going to get some go further with this area and seeing if it is a replacement for opioids. Is it work for psychotherapy? It could work the wrong way. We know we've all seen the schizophrenic patient from overuse of drugs, but it just we need to we need to allow it to be in our medical records and, and tracked. That's all I'm saying. Um, yeah, 100%. I, I think the big question that we're coming to, which is an important one, and, and Prerac, maybe we can post this uh, article about fentanyl also uh, next. But I was going to say that, you know, before we jump to the next article, I will say there is, there are two schools of thought on this around, uh, around the medical records, I think there should only be one school of thought. But I was going to say that around uh, reducing regulation on something that we know uh doesn't kill you immediately. And we know that risk of overdose is low, but we don't know the long-term side effects of it. Uh, but then people are gonna get access to it anyway. And if they get access to it in the wrong way, they can actually uh, get access, you know, have drugs that are mixed in that actually can have short-term impact and long-term impact. This is, it's not so simple. There is no correct answer, uh, but yes, we need to study it as soon as possible. And talking of, you mentioned opioids, so I wanted to, um bring up this incredibly saddening story that is affecting so many families here in the u.s and i'm sure across the world but really badly in the u.s uh which was about teenage uh fentanyl deaths are, are soaring um and in fact black teens are being hit the hardest uh with a five-fold increase in two years uh, uh, again you know uh for people that haven't uh, been paying attention to what's happening in the u.s um the CDC data uh, showed that the 22-21 figures are, uh, are, and this is even with like incomplete numbers from the 2021 uh, figures, 
uh, because there's usually a six month lag. But uh, there has been such an increase in drug use during the pandemic. Uh, and it's likely that our numbers in 2021 are going to be worse, possibly, than even the numbers in, uh, in 2020 uh, uh, and 2019. But the past two decades have been bad. But I, what I wanted to highlight here is the role of synthetic opioids. And I think people are talking about this, but it's still needs to be repeated, which is we have sort of the, the quote unquote traditional opioids that have been out in the market for a very, very long time. And then we have this new batch of synthetic opioids that are really the driving force behind these deaths, especially in young people over the past past few years. And again, um, it's affecting black teens. Synthetic opioids specifically are being targeted and are affecting communities of color significantly higher. Uh, in fact, if you look at the data of fentanyl overdoses in Black and Hispanic teens, it is absolutely heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, it, you know, opioids affect all colors, but we're seeing a rise in communities of color. And I think that that's something that a lot of our colleagues out in the emergency rooms will start, you know, you, you're hearing anecdotally, I was actually, I sent this article in a group chat among some friends and uh, and they were like, dude, you have no idea. It's, it's, we're seeing more and more people of color showing up. I'm not even getting first or second time utilization of fentanyl. This is not like people that have been doing this forever. They tried it once, ended up in the emergency room and passed away. I mean, like these, yeah. these are stories I was hearing and it's absolutely heartbreaking. Dr. Francine? Yeah, Dr. Damish, I have a friend who's running for governor in Arizona. And as part of her investigation, she went to the border. And what she found at the border is that the cartels ha have charge of the, never mind illegal immigrants, that's nothing. The cartels control the border and they control the, and they're getting fentanyl from China and they're introducing it into the United States. And that's how it's getting to these communities where it's, you know, first sold inexpensively in order to get people addicted. But it's coming over from China through Mexico. And it's a much bigger border crisis than the one we always talk about. And there's no way a, a wall will affect it or anything else. It's done by organized crime. And for people that don't know about fentanyl, and I, I just want to make sure that everybody understands why fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, um, and, and by the way, uh, no one can, I, I think Francine said something really important, which is where is this fentanyl being made and supplied from? It is being supplied from Asia, uh, primarily China. And that, it, it just speaks to um, the issues in terms of how to, how, to, how to affect this. But for people that don't know, fentanyl, is a hundred times more potent than morphine. And it's 50 times stronger than heroin. And it's often for a black teen in the US, they were, there was some information in this article that is often the first one that they're exposed to is fentanyl nowadays. And it's, um, uh, Dr. Pakteng, did you have something to add? Sorry, I saw you flashing earlier. Yeah, I hate to be like a know-it-all on this stage. <laughs> um, yeah, all these, Ugh, gosh, I've had all these issues are emergency medicine issues. Um, 
saddeningly, saddeningly, except for the first one. I'm very excited about that still. Um, the, uh, I've, I've had a lot of young, young black kids. I, I work in an urban, um, predominantly black neighborhood and I've unfortunately had kids die. Um, and for so many reasons. Um, but all, yeah, like, so I also do medical control and I pronounce people dead from the phone. Uh, like the paramedics call me and, um, they, I've pronounced a lot of young black men dead. And, um, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends on the New Jersey, um, on the medical examiners and, a lot of these deaths are from fentanyl. And so like, and then definitely it's rising. Uh, it's horrible. Um, well, I will say from the drug cartel side of it, they don't want their, like, they don't want their buyers to die, right? But it's synthetic. Um, they, they don't really yet understand it, how to cut it well, uh, how to mix it in. A lot of my patients are coming in that have been using drugs for years. And they're like, they come in with um, severe overdoses and they're like, what the hell? Um, so like, right, because they're slowly introducing fentanyl into the other drugs as well, because um, it's so potent, it's really useful for them to cut with. And a lot of people that are, you know, are, quote, I don't know how you want to say it, like they're smart users, I guess, um, of drugs, they're coming in with higher rates of overdose and almost dying as well. Um, so, you know, we are give it like we're trying to make sure that everyone has some Narcan even if they which is the reversal drug to save your life um in an opioid overdose we're trying to disseminate that even more because even like all, all the users um are are overdosing and, and dying unfortunately because of the introduction of this really potent synthetic thing that the um the distributors don't understand yeah, and what's really, uh, sorry, I was going to mention one thing, which is for people that uh, are not knowledgeable about this topic, uh, about drug overdoses, in 2015, black men were actually less likely to die from drug overdoses than, uh, than, than other, than specifically whiter indigenous men. Uh, and uh, since then, the death rate among black men has more than tripled. So this is not something that has existed in the black community at this level. And for people also that don't understand why synthetic opioids are so, it's not just the potency, it's also the release mechanism. When you take fentanyl, you get a very short high and you also start developing, and, and, and you, know, you also start developing uh, dependency much, much faster. And you also start depend, uh, developing tolerance much, much faster. So you need higher and higher doses earlier and earlier in the course of substance abuse. And, and that's uh, another reason why we're seeing this. So it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Thurak, uh, maybe the next story can be a little bit less heartbreaking. Yeah, I was going to just finish up with a bit of the economics behind this. There's been an increase in both supply and demand. So it's not just a one-sided game here. And that's primarily because, you know, overlay all of this with the presence of the pandemic uh as well as people spending more time at home so just wanted to provide a bit of the um insider uh economic part there uh, it seems like we've been going back and forth with a few like tough stories and some good stories so the next thing we're going to do is talk about some some good news here and again this one was um tweeted out to us as well where someone uh actually thanks social media because he basically needed a kidney 
And he went to social media and he literally tweeted, shit, I need a kidney. And um, what do you know? He, after he tweeted that, someone volunteered. They were a good match for each other. And now this man has a kidney. And uh, the whole story has gone a little viral, which is good and adds a bit of positivity to our day. And actually, with all the heat that social media has been getting, um, it's nice to know that there is something, sometimes something good that comes of it. Um, and so let me just find a way to share this story. Um, and in the meantime, I think um, multiple people shared this with us. But what do you think about this one, Dr. Ganesh? No, it's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, again, social media, this is my opinion about all these things anyway, which is uh, it's just a platform. It's neutral, in my opinion. Again, I know people will completely disagree with this. But at the end of the day, it can be used for good, too. It's just that we need to maybe work on the algorithms that are underlying them to, to, to get them to do the good instead of the bad. Jennifer, did you have something to add? No, I just agree with sorry, you. I I, sorry, I just agree with you. I was just clapping. Um, they are platforms and there's good and bad. It's just that right now the, um, a lot of the bad gets amplified. And so the, um, the, the remedy or whatever to that is to, is to put more good out. So I'm glad to hear this. Yeah, let me provide a bit of backstory here. So uh, Chris is the individual who needed the kidney. Uh, he tweeted this out right when he figured out he needed one. And then he went to watch a movie. And then 19 of his followers responded and offered to get tested to see if they could be a match. Uh, and so he was saying that before he even knew his blood type, people were volunteering uh, you know, theirs and doing all the research. Uh, and eventually, uh, someone named Scott Pacudatis came in and offered to donate his kidney and uh, they were actually just casual acquaintances acquaintances who knew each other um, from you know their location which was in Minnesota and then uh, I think essentially they were able to get it all worked out and it got him a kidney and uh, it seems like I'm sure there are other instances of this before but at least based on the number the amount of virality that's been going into this it seems like this was deemed the first social media transplant uh, and so Good, good things, positivity, and uh, you know, good some good news to share, basically. One hundred percent. The next story is is more neutral, talking about platforms. Uh, so the next story is about big tech jockeying for position and health data privacy. And so, um, well, for people that don't know, thirty percent of the world's data actually is generated by the healthcare industry, and there was. Uh, uh, there's a story around how much money is actually going into healthcare from big tech. And again, just to be clear, big tech has tried directly uh, to enter healthcare. There has been a few huge moves in the last two weeks uh, that we can go into. But this study was more about where are they investing and why. And so when you look across Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, um, uh, according to CB Insights, almost $7 billion uh, has been invested into healthcare startups from these large tech companies in a year and a half. <laughs> so uh, uh, so for people that think, oh, Apple, uh, you know, is Apple really coming into healthcare, even though they've had issues with Apple Health? Or is Google really coming into healthcare, even though they disbanded Google Health? They're there. You just don't see them. And again, for people that don't understand, corporate venture is, is usually a try before you buy type of mechanism. Cal, I wanted to see if you had anything to add on big tech and their, their views in healthcare 
of course, uh, uh, you know, with your background with Best Buy and their their acquisition of Current Health, are you seeing this trend? Do you think big tech's going to shy away, or do you think it's it's for real? Uh, I'm yeah, sorry, it's, you... definitely, it's definitely for real, um, and uh, uh, and it's uh, it's sitting on their growth. Um, if you look at their uh, annual reports and you listen to you know statements, and I'm talking about not insider information, but if you just look at all the public information and you and you do your analysis, you can see that every one of the big tech companies, and I, I know I'm stating the obvious to a tech community, but but in case people don't, there are other people on on this this particular room as well. Um, but if you look at the um, uh, intent and the strategies that they have and where their intent of uh, spending their investment dollars, uh, you can add the retailers in there too. Healthcare is like is like their number one growth platform, like right? more or less for almost all of these guys. And so, uh, uh, yeah, you're, you're dead on. And and uh, and this this whole space is is going to look so different. Who knows? Ten years from now, people are going to have these little charts saying, you know, who knew these five players were the biggest health players? Um, you know, it could be from Walmart. I mean, to, it might not even be any of these names, but let's say it's Walmart, it's Best Buy, it's uh, I know it all sounds a bit like, uh, you know, why would Best Buy be in healthcare? Uh, but they, they, if, if you look, if you listen to Corey Berry, if you listen uh, as the CEO, and if you listen to her, uh, if you read her annual report, and, and if you listen uh, to any strategic discussion they've had, uh, effectively their, their number one growth strategy, where they're investing money, uh, they do a lot of things quietly, uh, where they're investing money, where they're, uh, uh, you know, transitioning to is is they 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 care about taking care of people using technology, and they're going to take care of people in their homes. They're going to take care of older people over sixty fives, uh, but they're going to basically bring bring their kind of med squad, geek squad to the home and help people uh, survive, get better, uh, live live an independent life. That's their mission. That's what they're going to do. So that's just one company. Uh, but Walmart's, Walmart's in the space. And so, yeah, totally, totally validate what you're saying in terms of uh, this space. Now, who wins, who loses? God, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to watch and and uh, invest in and, and all that kind of stuff. That That's a whole different discussion. Yeah, and, you know, the question is also, is this a good thing? And we'll talk about that after. But, John, I don't know if you wanted to add something uh, to what Cal was saying. Uh, you know, it's it's such a rich topic. Um, I'll I'll just try and say a few very quick things. Um, there's big tech and big finance are looking for friction in systems and take the friction out of the system and um, make everybody a winner. Um, the attempts by big tech to do that have been very ill-informed in terms of the complexity of healthcare, the complexity of workflow, the complexity of the regulatory structure, the complexity of operations. And the, at, 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 at the other side of the game, the healthcare organizations are hiring doctors who were trained pretty much the same way they were trained decades ago in a world that's very, very different. And so the the incumbency is pretty stagnant, relatively speaking, in terms of big opportunities to reduce friction. And the big tech companies have made multiple well-funded attempts and failed to enter the market. But I think they finally figured out, as Cal said, 
where there are some clean opportunities to minimize the risks, take some friction out of the system, and hopefully um, inspire um, across the industry a much better level of service at a lower cost. But one of the big things that is not native to big tech is trust and caring. And I don't mean that as an indictment, it's just, it's just code. And so the intersection of technology and caring is one that has to be navigated very, very thoughtfully and delicately. And, and the big tech incursions in the past kind of missed that boat as well. And I, I, I think they've learned a lot, a lot of those lessons. And I think that they're going to have a huge impact in the next couple of years, huge, um, very outsized after uh, multiple failures in the past. And then just to put... Yeah, John, can I? Well. Oh, please. Okay, let's do uh, Evan and then Cal. No, I, I think my observation is just that uh, the big tech companies are getting very practical about their tech ambitions after some of those initial failures. I, I see you put up the story about Amazon rolling out nationwide, <laughs> and you know Microsoft and Azure is is turning health, digital health apps into like an app store on their cloud. And I've seen, you know, lots of these investments are just more practical approaches to uh, health tech versus these huge, ambitious, game-changing schemes they had maybe originally come up with. So it's good to see it get real practical and kind of down to earth. Thanks. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of make sure that everybody knows what story I put up there, I will say I am very skeptical of this Amazon move. I will explain why if people are really interested. But they did announce that they're rolling this out, this telehealth service nationwide uh, to compete directly with the teledocs and those of the world. Um, and, uh, you know, again, they've got a lot of employees of their own to focus on uh, and to roll this out with. So hopefully they can get to product market fit pretty quickly. Uh, but uh, to Evan's point, we're seeing maybe a little bit more. I will say that I'm actually of the belief that Partially, it was because the digital infrastructure was not built yet. And that's what has been driving some of these challenges. Uh, and it's not that the incumbents know something incredible that these tech companies don't know. They go and they hire consultants. It's not crazy. I think the, the best counter example to my current point was IBM Watson. But, you know, when you look at what has happened in the last few years with Haven, they bought Atul Gawande. You know, uh, there are people that are coming in that do know how incumbents work. Um, and the problem is, I think it's more of a mismatch of, you know, uh, incumbents plus tech people don't work together well. And I think that's what's been challenging. So instead, what they're doing is they're saying, we're not going to work with the current health system. We're going to work around it. And that's what you're going to see con consistently is that they're going to go disintermediate the health systems locally. They're going to make them, in my opinion, irrelevant. They keep trying, right, John? They keep trying different things. And at some point, that's what makes tech so incredible is that once they hit it, which I think telehealth is a really exciting one for them because it's just tech primarily today. Uh, it's, it's, it's FaceTime with your doctor. There's nothing doctoring about it. Uh, it's incredibly limited, but it's a good place for them to start because they can, you know, in my opinion, Amazon can, can make this commoditized uh, experience and service uh, and deliver it well. I think Geek Squad is an incredible one to start bringing healthcare, especially for 
people that are a little bit older and helping them with their healthcare devices and the remote patient monitoring with current health. I think these are going to be where things are going to come. I will say, don't be surprised if in the next two years you see a flurry of acquisitions. I think tech will, you know, we will see health systems start dropping like flies because these tech companies will start accumulating through an M&A strategy, which is really hard to execute on. But I think that the tech companies are better suited for consolidation within the industry. There's so many point solutions in digital health right now. Uh, and we're going to see this acquisition environment occur. Edward, did you have a thought? Yeah, I do. As I listen to this, it's really fascinating. And one of the things that strikes me is the kind of exquisite delivery systems that these tech companies have, you know, specifically Amazon. Um, you know, what's interesting is uh, I think that there's a good chance that the Amazons of the world will become the, you know, primary deliverer, so to speak, of, of our medications, if they're not already, uh, our, our tests. And I bring that up because I got an email notification today um, at seven o'clock in the morning from the United States Postal Service that my free at-home COVID tests were going to arrive this week. Now, I completely forgot about this. I mean, I ordered them, you know, what, four or five weeks ago when all of this was first announced. And it just takes the wheels of the Postal Service slash the government weeks to kind of make good on what was supposed to be, you know, a very quick rollout of this type of thing. And, you know, Amazon is so, you know, FedEx, UPS, they're so equipped to take over this function. So I just throw that out there as another kind of offshoot of this. Now, I will say it leads to a bigger question, which is, do you really want Amazon to know what's going on with your health? In terms of, I mean, that's they, the big question. They already do. To, deli to, del <laughs> to deliver six COVID tests at home, I don't care. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, but Edward, Amazon Care, imagine what Amazon has done to its employees. I mean, I don't think it's surprising for anybody to hear. Amazon doesn't have the best relationship with its employees, uh, especially its warehouse employees. Maybe the corporate employees are a little bit happier. So the fact that they're starting with this, I, I can tell you, that there is going to be a level of skepticism in allowing Amazon to know your own individual information. And remember that- uh, I, I don't know, doctor. I mean, I'm, I, I mean, just to interrupt, I mean, I, I don't know how many people love Amazon. Didn't they have like a, a approval rate of like 90% among the general public or something during the pandemic? Yeah, but people don't trust Amazon. They love it. For, for getting no, there. I, I, I don't know who these people don't trust are. The data is out there, actually. I'm with Evan. No, I'm I, with I, Evan. I totally trust Amazon. But I'm talking about. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Let me finish my sentence here. So they, they, there's. I, uh, Prerac, maybe you can Google this and try to find some information. I've seen several studies where people said that they do not trust big tech with their healthcare data. There is so many studies. I don't. You know, you individually may, but the average person does not. And interestingly, you know who they do trust. With their healthcare data, their doctor. So there is a study that looks specifically at this. If you can Google that while we're having this discussion, I understand that we have some technophiles here, and but what we have to keep in mind is that the average person out there uh, does not trust Amazon for a variety of reasons, and they don't trust Google, they don't trust Facebook, likely because of corporate media uh, uh, possibly smearing Facebook a little bit. But you know, it's not. It's not 
unreasonable to say that the average American does not trust Amazon with their healthcare information. They don't trust any of the big tech companies with it. Sorry, Evan, go ahead. Can, can, yeah, can I? Oh, no, I, I was just I was just going to reply. I did a quick search and Amazon has the highest favorability rating of really any company uh, out, that's been surveyed. I mean, so. Again, you're asking a different question than I am. So what I'm saying no, is no, do no, people no. trust... I've used- I've used PillPack for years, and that's that is a pharmacy that Amazon bought, and they just let it run by itself. So I think it's a very individual um, issue, Doctor Doctor Danish. I think that it's true, as Edward said. What difference does it make if you know if they know about you enough to give you your COVID tests? You know what. What exactly are they going to do with that kind of healthcare data anyway? Well, so also, I'm, I'm going to be putting a link here. Can I can I type in two things? They they I I think people do trust Amazon. They may not trust Facebook with their data, but I think people do trust Amazon. But again, that's my experience. But also, if they knew what their hospitals were doing with their healthcare data, they might have a different opinion. Um, in that hospitals have some of the worst security with data, and also. The, the potential for better uses of data, because as we know, they they silo that data and they don't, it's not used well. And so if you can get a tech company that uses it well, not necessarily against you, but for you or for the population, there's huge opportunities here. And I think people will see more of that. So, so what we're seeing here is selection bias. This is beautiful. This is actually like a, an important thing to show clearly, because I can tell you, there's a reason why some of the doctors have not replied yet. Well, D- uh, Danish, can I, can I jump in then? Uh, just really quickly, uh, uh, I, I pinned something at the top. Feel free to read it. There's like 20 other studies after this one that have shown this specific thing. But Olu, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to add that I think our consumer data, which Amazon does have access to, are proxies for health data. And I think if we we trust Amazon with all the all of our purchases that we make, I think it's not that far of a leap for them to be trusted with with healthcare data, which, as I said, our purchasing information is can be proxies for. So, Olu, I have a question for you. Think about your patients. Let's not think about ourselves. We're we're clearly people that love technology, but the data shows that people trust their physician with their data. Guys, look at the data from advisory.com. They, this is a Rock Health survey, so it's not specifically from advisory.com uh, or advisory, uh, but specifically, uh, hilariously, they were looking at, uh, in 2019, who do patients actually trust with their data? They, they trust their physician. I am in shock that they trust their insurance company, but that's like 50%, so one out of two people. Physicians, 80% of people trust with the data. Pharmacy, uh, a little bit less. Research institution, less than that, nobody trusts pharmaceutical companies or government or tech. That sounds like more of the Americans I know. Uh, and again, I live in the middle of the country, so it's a little bit different. I think on the East Coast and West Coast, maybe the d- data is significantly different. But I just want to be real about like the reality of it, not what we believe it to be, but what the data shows. And so uh, Maybe, you know, I think, I, Manas, I, go I, ahead. Uh, um, as I'm listening uh, to the last two posts, um, um, and looking at what we came uh, to in the past two years. So uh, the health data, it doesn't belong to the healthcare setting anymore. So we need data collection from school, groceries, everywhere in the society, right? So, and as Edward mentioned, when it takes like four weeks to receive uh, home kit, 
uh, test for COVID. Uh, imagine if they want to, and we have a, this a struggle during um, COVID with data collection and uh, not having a great system to collect that data and also communicate that data, a lot of manual work. Uh, what we, we have seen in the past two years or so in tech and healthcare uh, is the expansion of hospital information exchange. And before that, even though integration, it was a requirement um, for a lot of uh, um, EHR and a lot of apps, even a lot of uh, hardware that we are using in healthcare. I think it's more significant in um, um, a government policy and also a tech uh, health company to understand. Even Amazon, if they are trying to stay secluded, don't have integration. We know what happened with Epic when they didn't integrate with uh, EHR. Now they are a big support supporting with this component that they are integrating with EHR and uh, hospital information exchange. So uh, when we have a big data, the delivery, the collection, and the analysis of that data is really important. And as much as we can eliminate the manual work, it's going to be more beneficial, more accurate, and faster, and we can uh, get a better analysis and outcome. Same thing with the Apple, same thing with the Amazon. If they want to come, or Google, um, if they want to become part of this big um, society, this big industry, this big uh, health component in our society, um, they have to consider that component, and if they don't, uh, probably they're, gonna, they're not going to be successful. But down the road, I'm sure they are becoming part of that big uh, hospital information exchange. Thank you. Yeah, Cal. Cal, did you have a thought? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, uh, so no, uh, the discussion kind of moved on a little bit, but I just. Uh, I think I think what's uh, just as a having worked in like a consumer industry or consumer business, one of the things I've always found is that what people say in surveys, and then what they do when a when a really good proposition is put in front of them, are, mm -hmm. are you know you actually find out when somebody puts a proposition in front of them because what people want really at the end of the day is problem solved for themselves. I think you mentioned exactly. you know jobs to be done, right? So when 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 there's a job to be done and it's urgent and people want to get stuff done and they just want stuff, right? They want stuff done. And if somebody does it really well, it's quite possible that they just people can start trusting them with that service, right? And if that service happens to be, and I think they're starting, like you said, like everyone said here, they're starting in the places that are probably easier for the tech companies to do, right? And uh, uh, you know, I if I if I if I say you know we even ten years ago we were doing experiments with uh, you know collaborating with the Mayo Clinic this we may Best Buy me like uh, with the Mayo Clinic and then also with uh, uh, United Healthcare which is a Minnesota business too uh, in fact in fact the, the collaboration we were doing some experiments we were doing with consumers uh, were um, with Simon Stevens who went on to run the uh, NHS which is kind of weird but he. Uh, um, but when we did those, it was a, we were concerned exactly about this issue, and we were not a tech company. Like Best Buy is not a tech company as such, but it's, you know, uh, uh, like these tech companies now. Um, but they, but we were concerned about trust and branding, and and so we we're just running a whole bunch of experiments, and they've been doing that. But one thing it comes back to is that 
if you have a really solid proposition, right, and it works for consumers again and again, then then it then it, then they can get into it, right? So they they can. I mean, people don't trust the big companies, uh, big tech companies, conceptually, right? But when when they provide something that they want, uh, they use them, right? So I, anyway, I. I I hope that helps. No, absolutely. Yeah. Edward, did you have a thought? Yeah, one, one more thought on this, and I'm going to make a prediction here. Um, I'll go back to my example of the, the at-home COVID tests. Um, I can almost guarantee you that somebody right now is working on solving the problem of reporting the results of those tests, those at-home tests, to, you know, health entities, the government, uh, the trackers, and so on. And that's been a big deficiency in, in, in counting COVID infections, as we know, in recent months with Omicron. So many people are getting it, so many people have tested themselves at home, but that data doesn't go anywhere. So the, the counts of infections and, uh, are, 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 are low, are, are inadequate. Some data company, whether it's, you know, I don't know who it is, but someone is working on an automatic response or reporting of your data to the authorities at this point. And I'm, that, to me, that's kind of an exciting thing. I mean, it's, it's scary on one hand, but it's also kind of an exciting prospect. Oh, you're hey, jumping Edward, into COVID that, a little early. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Cal. Yeah, no, no, just, I, just uh, I, slightly separate. In the UK, just to Edward's point there, uh, um, the, because it's the NHS, right? It's a centralized system that they've built. Um, uh, you you kind of when you do a test at home it, it's not automatic edward yet but i i think like it doesn't take the data from the from the uh uh the test uh the physical test uh uh the thing uh and 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 kind of you know beams it up it doesn't do that automatically in that sense but it but you 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 there's a website you go in there you take your test you register the original test you got you put it in there and they seem to get some data back from people who do tests at home there so you, you're dead right. I think I think that's going to happen. And 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 the big tech companies, well, that that's on on that kind of data. But uh, anything you do at home, um, actually, I don't, I don't want to the current health thing that uh, uh, you know Best Buy acquired. I mean that that's a that's a home service, right? And all the data is like just going somewhere centrally and 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 providing uh, an opportunity for a better service. So yeah, that's going to happen, and it's it's. It, but if people get a better service and a job is done, they will trust um, the, the people providing it, in, in my view. Uh, and I think that the reason why I was mentioning acquisition as the strategy is because if you can develop a relationship with a company uh, and that that company gets bought out by a larger organization, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's easier for you to you know, uh, deal with that. You're not going to leave somebody who is meeting that value proposition. And that's, that's why I'm very convinced with that strategy. I think there's going to be a flurry. And you know what? We're going to be reporting on it here. There will be a flurry of acquisitions in health, in health tech in the next 12 to 18 months as big tech gobbles up, in my opinion, a significant portion. Uh, and, and mark my words, I'm seeing it happen already. Uh, and uh, I, I'm also going to predict that Microsoft will actually buy out Truveda. Uh, which is going to be a really interesting acquisition just on its on its own. But Prerac, back to you. Yeah, so let's just do the some of the numbers here already. So from that initial article we sent, uh, we were talking about with the Financial Times, um, uh, CB Insights has already shown that about seven billion was invested in healthcare startups by big tech last year, from in the year and a half to mid twenty twenty one. 
and then 40 billion globally last year in uh, digital health in general. So, I mean, obviously it's a growing sector and more importantly, uh, big tech is clearly going to be very involved. Um, so, so can I ask you, Prerak, I, yeah. I know you're like, you, you, you're, you've got your uh, finger on the pulse on, on, on so much on this, no, or, or Danish. Like, so what do you guys think the regulators would do? Because I totally buy, I, the, the, the proposition you make, it makes sense, right? And it just put my, put my head back into being in one of these companies and, you know, we've got to build the capability fast. We've got to build the credibility. We've got to get, you know, we've got to make the systems integrate. We've got to work that through. So for example, and I know structurally, this might be a very difficult thing to do because of the governance structures, but somebody could buy the Mayo Clinic, right? And, and that's an amazing reputation thing that uh, uh, people could create out of that. But what, where do the regulators come in here? Because they're, they're going to, they're, you know, they're looking at, you know, these guys buying gaming companies, you know, and, and so what, do you think they're even like, would they care? How would they, anyway, so maybe. This is the be- so Mayo Clinic is an interesting one, I think, because the Mayo Clinic is nonprofit, right? So, uh, but they could uh, buy out the Mayo Clinically Integrated Network, uh, which is actually just a for-profit management service organization. So uh, you're kind of uh, hinting at what I was hinting at, which is what we're going to see is, in my opinion, they're not going to go after uh, the traditional institutions directly. I just don't think that that type of an integration can work with the tech mentality. But I do see, for example, uh, large M&A occurring. I'm going to name some companies. I have no insider information here. But some of the companies that represent infrastructure, so Truveda represents the infrastructure for data, uh, 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 and Microsoft has already made a huge investment in it. Uh, you know, Babylon Health is another great example of a company that has a huge investment from Palantir, uh, you know, uh, and it has been incredibly popular uh, and has figured out how to be a for-profit company with the care delivery arm. Uh, you're going to see, I'm telling you right now, you're gonna see Amazon Care going and thinking about a lot of other companies, uh, a carbon health uh, and so on. You saw with, uh, so these, these are the types of, you know, we're talking about tech companies buying some of the upstarts that are rapidly growing within healthcare. Watch and wait and see, because those companies, because they're startups, are built from the ground up with a startup infrastructure, with a tech infrastructure. And that, uh, but they understand healthcare and they have direct relationships with patients. Um, I'm, I have this sneaking suspicion that, you know, the companies like Hinge Health, companies like Peerwell, companies like uh, Carbon Health, they are all ripe for potential acquisition from big tech because they are tech at their core and services in their front facing. That is exactly what tech wants. Awesome. Um, I'm just going to do a small flurry of news. We actually have done really good in terms of time this week. uh, And we've gotten through a lot more stories than we usually do, uh, which is great. Um, But I do want to make sure we address a few stories that we didn't get to because these, um, these were still very notable and I thought they were very interesting and shared by um, everyone over the week. So the first one is, um, I'm sure everyone heard there was a teen skater who had a doping test that tested positive and it was a Russian skater. Uh, and so I'm going to tweet this story out as well, but basically it was, she tested positive for a, um, for a drug. I, I forgetting the name, but it's basically categorized as a hormone and metabolic modulator, which is illegal for athletes to use both in and out of competition. 
Uh, and it is believed that this drug can improve, improve physical uh, efficiency, especially in the case of endurance sports, although opinions vary how long the effect can be. Um, oh, that's what it was. Trimetazidine. Trimetazidine. It's been a while since I've been saying big medical words, but that's one of them. I'll tweet that story out. Uh, the other story that we haven't uh, touched on, but I think it's going to be really interesting, is um, Biogen pushes back on Medicare's limits on Alzheimer's drug coverage and advanced and advances a counter offer. If you've been on our shows before, you know we've been following the Biogen saga from the beginning. Uh, they have this drug that they claims uh, that it works for Alzheimer's. The data is very mixed, if not entirely um, kind of counterintuitive and not entirely in the in the favor of the drug. And yet the company is still trying to get it um, to, to work and, and to basically be approved by Medicare so that they can be um, you know rich, I guess. And so I'll, we'll paste that latest update. Um, and I think the next two were actually from Evan. So Evan, we love your stories, but the first one was Apple Watch detects symptoms of thyroid issues months ahead of diagnosis. And this is this whole aspect of digital health we talk about all the time and digital biomarkers. When you now have a thing on your body that can measure your heart rate and your basic vitals all the time, such as your heart rate, you actually can get insights into issues such as thyroid, because guess one of the biggest issues of thyroid is if you're hyperthyroid, your heart rate is consistently a little bit elevated, a little bit above normal, which is around 100. Um, and if it if you have hypothyroid, your heart rate is not as elevated and it's actually a bit below what you might expect for normal. And so because of this ability to measure things, Apple Watch um, claims, uh, this article shows that it detects symptoms of thyroid issues months ahead of diagnosis because people now go in saying, hey, my heart rate's consistently been X or Y. Uh, do you think this is something that we need to look into? So interesting insight there. And the last- But as a, just a question for the doctors. I mean, as a patient, what do I do with this info? Because it, my doctor doesn't really ask about any of my data from my Apple Watch, and I'm not sure how to give this data to him. I mean, unless you're an expert, how do you use this practically day to day? Thanks. So. So we're seeing, uh, I mean, and again, shameless plug. So disclaimer up front, uh, companies like ours, which is a tech enabled primary care practice, we're actually going to start integrating uh, devices directly into our care delivery model, which we believe is going to be incredibly valuable. So um, after just uh, uh, hating on the big tech companies for the last 20 minutes, uh, I, uh, I will admit that some of this data can be uh, incorporated. So imagine you went to a doctor's office, they gave you a blood pressure cuff. And every time you took your blood pressure at home, it actually integrated into the medical record. And the doctor could then talk about your blood pressure over time. That's what we're doing at Resilient uh, uh, already. And we're really excited about it. Same thing with the Apple Watch. Imagine, you know, people don't think that like a single lead EKG is valuable, but it is incredibly valuable. If you're looking at things like tachycardia, uh, which can be uh, resulting from, and even AFib can come from hyperthyroidism, but even tachycardia associated with hyperthyroidism, uh, you know, as they add blood pressure tools, that can be incredibly valuable. So we believe that the ability to integrate some of these more consumer-oriented devices that do have existing FDA approval, like the Apple Watch, uh, is going to be an incredibly important thing that's going to happen. So, and I can tell you, it's not just going to be us. You're going to see this become... Uh, something that is an expectation. Hey, hey Danish, uh, play play them one against the other, and don't sell for a billion, right? <laughs> Just make sure <laughs> make sure you make sure you get the right deal. 
Oh, don't uh, do Cal, it. you can negotiate for me. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a really bad <laughs> negotiator, kidding. so that'll be just really kidding. helpful. But, hey. but, but, the point, but the point here just remains, which is all of these people are walking around with incredible devices and none of the doctors are using it in their current care delivery model. Not because we don't want to. Ask Erica and if she could know every patient's blood pressure and their trend over the course of their, their health, uh, she'd love to know that. And she'd hate for them to have to go in and manually enter in that information. It would be great if she could give them a blood pressure cuff and then see the trend in the next visit, right? Uh, uh, but unfortunately, the systems aren't set up that way, which is what I'm saying is I don't see big tech really getting into that uh, until uh, you know health systems can do that at scale. Sorry, Edward. Yeah, no, no, that's a brilliant idea. The, the idea of, you know, on, on a very basic level, transmitting your blood pressure data to your doctor. For, so I have ever so slightly elevated blood pressure and I'm on a, you know, five milligrams of, uh, oh, I don't know, remember the drug. But anyway, um, I take my blood pressure quite frequently. And what I do is I go into my doctor with a folded up piece of scrap paper with like 30, you know, entries of my blood pressure on whatever day. And he looks at it and says, oh, you're doing well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Man, you know, that's like so 20th century. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's a reality. By the way, that's what Erica would ask her patients to do, right, Erica? Um, yeah, so um, I think the piece that big tech is missing is like they can collect the data, but until you have um, the right clinicians hired by big tech to know what to do with the data, and I think that's your point, Donish, is they can't do it, do any of the actual clinical care effectively, right? So they can collect all this data, but what does it mean? Um, and to speak to your point, Edward, I know you and I see you frequently in clinic, right? Like I know exactly that visit, the folded up piece of paper um, with like no dates or context, or it's like on the, literally the back. No, I, I do dates or... and times and, <laughs> no, no, and no, no, readings. No. Yeah. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I, I know. You're doing better than um, my patients. Um, but actually the VA has the, the like, um, the 1990s version of this, um, we have telehealth where patients get equipment um, and we have a nurse integrated into the scheme. So it transmits um, automatically and, and insurance companies have this too. Um, and certainly post-hospital um, CHF follow-up or COPD follow-up where they follow, you know, oxygen saturations, respiratory rate and um, blood pressure and heart rate. Um, and we, we have this and we do have transmission automatically. And then the manual piece of it is that a nurse monitors the values and anything out of range gets fed to the clinicians. Um, it's clunky and cumbersome, but it is the, it's the intermediate step of what Donish is trying to build. Um, and so we, we do have that integrated, but I think the piece that tech is going to miss if they're not very careful is having the right clinicians on the other side of the data to actually impact patient outcomes. So interesting, yeah, Eric. I just want to add real quick uh, what Donish was saying. Chandler, yeah, one so, second. I was just going to answer oh, go ahead, one, one question that Erica was. So, Erica, just to be very clear, big tech actually believes that AI is the right clinician. And, and uh, <laughs> that, that's their actual belief around this data. I just wanted to, no, to mention that. Yeah, uh, that's their belief because they, they, they just don't think that reading your blood pressure needs to be something that you need a medical degree for. But it is it's, it's fascinating. Sorry. Uh, Erica, go ahead and then Chandler. Just no, to I just think that the, um, that undermines what we do so much in that, um, you know, they think they, the non-clinicians, think that all of medicine is algorithmic. Um, and while 
there are recommendations for blood pressure management and that the first line therapy can be algorithmic for many people and you can plug in data points and get the right answer. Um, once you get to drug number two or drug number three or the lab values start to be out of whack from drug number one, um, there's a lot of um, finesse and experience that it takes. And it doesn't have to be a physician. There are plenty of other people that do it. You know, we have clinical pharmacists that do it. Our nurses are very high level and they'll make, um, you know, the docs have to sign off on the recommendations, but the nurses often understand the next step. Um, but the idea that AI alone is going to be able to do this, um, I'm not, I'm not worried that my job is going to go away. Let's just say that. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to give Chandler a chance to jump in here. Yeah, you know, I just want to kind of go back to what Edward was talking about. And I agree with uh, Dr. Erica here. So give you an example, like, let's say, um, you know, and I believe in consumerism. So the key is to definitely bring this up to the physician, but it's not a linear kind of a process. So let's say Edward comes to my office and says, I have these list of blood pressures. And, you know, what do you think? I'm not thinking blood pressure medications at that point. I'm thinking, okay, we got a problem here. All right. Is the kidneys working? right? Are we having diabetes? Did we gain weight? I'm trying to figure out the underlying cause. Did Edward take a lot of Motrin and ibuprofen? Now he's got kidney disease that's causing high blood pressure. So it creates a process where you try to figure out what's causing the hypertension than just fixing it. You know, so going back to uh, what we we're talking about with the thyroid condition, right? I had patients with TSH at eight that I'm not treating because they don't have any symptoms. And so then if they have hyperthyroidism, I've got to talk to them and say, do you have a recent infection? Is this a subclinical hyperthyroid situation? And so I think the key is to bring it up to the doctor, but then the doctor has to kind of process it and think about what's causing all of these conditions, hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, hypertension. So I think it should open up more dialogue. So I think that's the key here. Back to you, Danish. Uh, may I add something, Danish? Yeah, um, yeah man, no, go ahead. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the biggest challenge that we have in today's healthcare is the uh, time data collection, timely and accurately. So, uh, at least in US, when we have a new regulation and quality indicator, that what is adding to the end user and providers and clinician to do, do more documentation and takes their time, the valuable time that they have to be at the bedside and taking care of the patients uh, on the computer or any other gadget. So uh, the, the, as much as we are excited about the big data and all the healthcare data we are collecting, but it's still the uh, accuracy and all the element that we need uh, to have a right diagnosis or right uh, plan of care for a patient is still sometimes it gets missed because the collection of that data is not being done uh, thorough and is not being done timely. So automation, it's a key for sure. And I don't think it's just AI uh, is gonna replace uh, the clinician and the healthcare providers, but what it's gonna do is gonna add the quality of care and the less, um, um, we're going to less um, spend much, much less in our healthcare setting. Thank you. 100%. And again, you know, just want to be very clear about this. Uh, we're not all Luddites here. Uh, it's not that we don't want technology to be a large part of what we're doing. I think what a lot of physicians are saying right now and maybe it's just because we can't see what the tech people are seeing, but I suspect it's more 
but the tech people don't know what we know. And so, you know, I think uh, ultimately what we're asking for is that let's integrate tech into the current, uh, you know, into a way that it can actually be useful for patient care delivery, instead of thinking that we can completely disintermediate tech uh, you know, and, and uh, Rizwan, I, I think I saw you unmute. Well, I was going to say, that is oh, sorry, it. Jennifer, it, go ahead. You need medical, you, the doctors, the medical people would be the ones designing any AI or tech. I mean, that's the thing. It's just, a, the, the tech is just another tool in the quiver. It's not there to like replace it from the ground up. I mean, same for the legal field. I'm super happy. We're not going to be replaced. As was said by other people, I'm not going to be replaced because we're, um, it's what, it's knowledge-based, but um you're, it's just another tool in your quiver to provide more data points and for the low hanging fruit, hopefully be able to, you know, point some issues out that doctors might miss or give more data that would enable doctors. I mean, I don't think it's designed in a vacuum, right? Yeah, but what's really interesting is the problem that we have right now in healthcare, and this is something that we talk about internally a lot, but people might not be aware of this, is that we have this incredible shortage in uh, physicians, especially primary care physicians, physicians that are taking care of patients, uh, you know, on the field and uh, taking care of their primary care needs. And I think a lot of this technology is being built with uh, that in mind, like, hey, we as physicians are limited. I, you know, I can't see 5,000 patients, uh, you know, and, uh, and even if you made it easier for me to see 10,000 patients, is that even a good thing? Uh, you know, we need to figure out how to make healthcare more scalable because this one-to-one model, uh, while being incredibly uh, effective, is not scalable. And I think that's what's really bothering people is that we're seeing the writing on the wall. People are getting older. You know, by uh, 2050, uh, 15,000 people will be turning uh, 65 every day. Uh, you know, you don't get enough time with your doctor. How do we actually make healthcare scalable in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way without overwhelming the doctors and the clinicians. And it's, it's, it's a real problem. I mean, it's not, I don't think the tech companies are, are thinking about this the wrong way. There is a scalability issue when you have a service delivery business. And, and I think that's what people are trying to attack. Uh, you know, lawyers have figured out team-based uh, care or team-based uh, client management. That just doesn't work as well in healthcare to truly make us scalable. I think it works, but it's not perfect. And, it's just, it's a real challenge. Rizwan, oh, sorry, I'll yeah. tell you. I'm not equating legal practice with medical practice at all in that. I'm just saying that there, it's a knowledge-based area. And I, I agree with you that it's, you know, there's not enough doctors. There's a problem there. But I think that what they're trying to do is is provide more information, maybe for more um, streamlined ability to assess things. And it's, and I would also, um, just from my limited experience of doctors, your primary care person is the one who's more comprehensive and can see what's going on in the big picture. Whereas a lot of specialists aren't going to see that or a lot of like, you know, routine, you know, emergency visits. So that's unfortunate. Yeah, 100%. Rizwan? Uh, thank you, Dan. So I'm a cardiologist based in Oxford. Um, I'll come back to trimetazidine because we're actually doing some research with that. But I wanted to tackle, uh, to, to address the point of uh, technology use, um, whether that's remote monitoring of blood pressure and another and, and all or AI decision support systems. So um, I think it's important once there are, these are developed that they they are demonstrated to improve outcomes, whether that is clinical outcomes, um, either that soft or surrogate outcomes, um, with such as improved blood pressure control, or uh, the patient experience 
uh, and uh, overall uh, the, the overall um, uh, resource use utilization because medicines uh, uh, there are numerous interventions drugs and devices that that make logical sense that make numbers look better uh, with closer monitoring but um, they don't always translate to improved hard outcomes and i think i would just um uh, put a, co uh, a note of caution in that yeah good example is diabetes right we've talked about it quite a lot that we, we've been over treating diabetes uh for in some patients trying to get them to reach a certain milestone on hemoglobin a1c and a lot of that was being driven obviously by lobbying uh uh you know uh, uh to keep uh, hemoglobin A1C below a certain level, but just chasing that number led to more hypoglycemic episodes, uh, which were actually much more dangerous for the patient than anything else. So just chasing numbers is not the answer either. I don't know, man. Rizwan, I have to say that AI should be able to solve for that. Uh, and uh, tech should be able to solve for that. In fact, I would say doctors are probably worse at chasing, we're like worse squirrels than AI at chasing acorns. But uh, it's something that, uh, not, not to... Again, I just want this to be an honest discourse around the fact that doctors aren't great at the same problems that you just mentioned. Uh, I, I agree. I mean, uh, diabetes was the one I got. The was the first example I was thinking of, uh, and I can't don't have any studies that to mention off the top of my head. But there, there are certainly a number of health interventions uh, that, where frankly speaking, better, more in, information is provided, more regular input from a specialist nurse um, uh, who who nurses tend to follow strict protocols not deviate out of them whereas doctors add a, a, you know, uh, tend to deviate out of them and sometimes on occasions they actually uh, nurse uh, led uh, decision support and nurse um, led decision making can also improve outcomes but, but but that's where AI, if it's been trained to um, trained on the protocols and as it's being developed, I uh, think it's very likely that it, it is there may well be have improved outcomes, patient experience, and cost utilization as well. So if I may, I can I can tell you where these things might be very helpful and where they're a little bit integrated into our system and where they're pain points for us as the clinicians and where the nurses actually do better um, as I see it now. So um, immunization reminders, preventive health things that aren't, that are very protocolized, um, you know, mammogram reminders, pap smear reminders, um, colon cancer screening in a previously healthy person, those kind of reminders that literally just turn on eye screening, you know, a, a diabetic eye exam, a microalbumin screening, um, those things that are very protocolized, we do them the same for almost everybody. They don't require deviation from the algorithm. Um, and for us, um, they take some time to discuss when we're trying to actually manage disease and they aren't necessarily value added to our visit and they could be done by somebody who doesn't, who isn't at the physician level. I think that actually is where AI could be very helpful. In our, in our current model, um, oftentimes they are done by somebody else. Um, our nurses can place those orders, but vaccines are given on, you know, as um, just per protocol, those sorts of things. So I do think there is a place for AI, and it could be very helpful for those things to be done. But let leave the medical decision making to the clinician. Yeah, oh, you know, just to kind of chime in real quick on the cardiology front, uh, this Chandler. Um, 
you know, it's not just algorithmic. So, for instance, if somebody has a myocardial infarction, which is a heart attack, we think of it as a chest pain that goes through the neck or the left arm. But you could actually have an atypical presentation, like indigestion, which is a right coronary artery. And so you wouldn't really think about that unless you go through the process. Or elevated troponins, which is an enzyme that is released by the heart. If somebody has heart disease, heart failure, or even if they have kidney disease, the troponin levels will be high. Or even on an EKG, if an EKG shows ST segment elevation, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a heart attack. It could have a pericarditis. And so a physician has to kind of go through all these data facts, put it together and say, is this a heart attack? Rather than the troponin is high, it's a heart attack. So I think that's the key there. That's the medical decision making. Back to you, Donish. Can I uh, ask a question? Sorry, Donish, one second, right? Dr. Chandler and uh, uh, Dr. Riz, uh, Rizwan, you're in Oxford there, by the way, I live in Oxford, so it's kind of weird we're on this platform. But I, just a question to you guys, just what, what Dr. Chandler just mentioned there, it feels like, and I, I understand tech a little bit in other contexts, so I, I, I'm not a medical, but that's, that's, I mean, that's a pretty, that's just an algorithm, right? I mean, like you've got all these data points that come in, right? And honestly, my son's up there, he's 16, he's programming something that's got like quite a lot of complex inputs that are coming in. And, and these neural nets are gonna start learning various things. And I don't even understand how he's, how he's doing that. But you know, he's, he's, these things are quite, I mean, isn't it really hard for a doctor to keep all that in their head and then look it up and then look for different sources and see what the latest stuff is? And, just a tool that would like literally do that for you. And then you can confirm it or not, because there might be some anomalies or something. But I imagine that that's going to be really powerful and potentially disruptive for how you train medical doctors or not. Or is it just, uh, um, you know, a little kind of uh, Apple toy that we'll all just look at our data and then we'll come <laughs> to the doctor. Yeah, it, you know, it's experience, right? I mean, that's why it's six years of residency. Uh, during medical school, you learn all how to read an EKG, how to interpret troponins, but you have to make a lot of mistakes as an intern and a resident then an attending. It's like, no, that, that's not a myocardial infarction, right? That's 80 hours a week for six long years of residency, and that's where the art of medicine comes into play, where it's not just algorithm. It's also trying to figure out, does this person really truly have a chest pain that's because of ischemic heart disease? So that, I think that's the challenge, and that's six years of experience as a resident. So if I could just uh, come in there, I, I, I agree with both of you, but actually, um, whether it is human intelligence or artificial intelligence, um, you know, one, doctors are not 100%, um, are, are not, not infallible. And also, um, there are differences of opinion, and I'm not talking from the time of a, a junior doctor who's newly qualified to a senior resident or a trained cardiologist or you know, a very, very experienced graying cardiologist who's been around uh, the blocks, as it were. So, um, you know, we all have a, we have, all have an algorithm in our head. And what is what I, I use, what I have learned and read over the years. Um, and, and so what AI, uh, and, and you're right, uh, Chandler, Dr. Chandler, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you, but um, I think that a, a technology is there to support decisions and in, and reduce the um, re, uh, rate of error. We know that errors, um, and this is when widely published, medical errors um, by by doctors, let's say, not not 
blame technology, um, are responsible for considerable morbidity and mortality um, uh, throughout the world. Yeah, I'll give you a great example. I'll give you a great example. Every time somebody has an EKG, they're on the on the far right corner. There's an interpretation of the EKG, and I will tell you, looking at the EKG myself, it's not 100% right. So, you know, the EKG interpretation is not necessarily the same as using your own calipers. So I will push back a little, and then I want Catherine to weigh in, if that's okay, Catherine. But I was going to say that um, I disagree. <laughs> so I just I, I think what Cal is saying. You know, here here's the challenge in healthcare right now. I just said that there's a lot of healthcare data, but the problem with healthcare data is how crappy it is. And it's because we take all of this high fidelity data, what the doctor is seeing, what the doctor is feeling, what the doctor is hearing, and then we convert it into low fidelity data like text. And that's where we're putting the bias of the doctor actually into the record itself. As we see more and more modalities come out, that capture that real doctor-patient interaction in the high fidelity uh, you know, space, we're gonna see more and more of this. Secondly, I think, I actually think that AI and its ability to take multimodality data and come up with an insight is probably going to become superior to humans uh, in terms of actual cognitive de clinical decision-making. And again, we can agree to disagree here, but you know, we've seen this happen across the board in every other industry. It's just the, the digitization of healthcare has been limited to this really crappy piece of information, which is the medical record. Uh, as we see, I actually think that clinical decision support will have its heyday. It's just not yet there yet. The last thing I was gonna say is, I think what we're going to see happen is that doctors' roles are going to evolve from being the diagnostician to being the person that can actually get the information out of the patient and, and be the person that actually sits there and understands. With the rise of precision medicine, which is why I really want to hear from Catherine, you know, we're actually seeing that doctors are going to start coming to their edge of what they can do with all of these different pieces of information, including biomarkers and others. And we're going to need some augmentation to take and process all of this disparate data and come up with more personalized plans. So, you know, Erica, I, 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 I love the thought that you had, but actually, Maybe for patient X, we shouldn't be doing a colonoscopy when they're 55. Maybe we should be doing it when they're 52 because that's when the risk really is highest. And if we could catch it 52, we should, you know, like that, that's an example of what I'm saying. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, the, the ability to personalize and customize it based on a significant amount of data. Cool companies like Genioscopy and others come to mind where they're taking your microbiome and based on all of that data and, and all these other biomarkers are able to tell you things that you may not know from a regular doctor out in practice. And so I just wanted to kind of push back a little. I think the yep. role of the doctor is going to change from a diagnostician to being an advocate. And I think that the diagnostician uh, will take both what they understand, because what we're missing right now is the doctors have so much information that they, we spend most of the time evaluating the information and spend less of our visits doing shared decision-making and understanding the goal. No AI, in my opinion, can truly understand that, you know, like my dad, you know, all he wanted, he didn't want his kidneys, his creatinine to be below 2.4. Uh, you know, he wanted to be able to hold his grandchild, right? And lift him up. That's what he wanted. That's what doctors need to be doing more of, in my opinion. Again, 
This is a personal opinion, but you know, Catherine, uh, Chandler, if you want yeah, to respond, go ahead. Yeah, you make some valid points, Donish, you know, and I, I agree with some of your points. I think the key right now is just the technology is not there. And so, you know, another example is if a woman gets a mammogram uh, and she's above 40 and she has a mammogram, well, the radiologist is not just reading that mammogram. There's actually a computer algorithm that's using AI to figure out if something's malignant or not. And the radiologist looks over the AI information and comes with an interpretation. The bottom line is there are a lot of cases where the, the digital AI makes it look like it's cancer, but then it's biopsy and it's not cancer. And so I, I believe what you're saying, I think it's going to take some time. It's just going to be added information, but we're just not there yet, at least in terms of the radiology front, but I'll kind of share the mic to anybody else. Oh, this is Catherine. I'd like to say a few things. And the first is that these wearables, um, I, I personally think this article is total clickbait uh, because people love to postulate how off their thyroid might be. But in any event, the goal here is to help someone use these wearable datas to become more self-quantified. In my practice in precision medicine, where I find it's most helpful when I am working with a patient, it is how I am helping them determine what is the reference range that determines what is optimal for them. And that will be different for a woman who has uh, Graves' disease where you know, we're going to be looking. If her heart rate gets high, that might mean that we have to adjust her thyroid medication. Uh, it could relate to uh, the dose of a beta blocker or the fluid status of a heart failure patient. For mental health, it has a lot to do with anxiety and how we can help patients with meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy to regulate their heart rate. So teaching people how to use the data points they're getting from their wearable data and then offering customizable reference ranges that can, with AI, align to the impact of medication changes, um, laboratory changes, and, uh, you know, as Dr. Erica said, if they had a vaccine, you know, how we can trend and track and layer all of these data points into their environment. Um, I think it's really helpful. We already have the technology. When it comes to genomic surveillance, you know, you can get preventive genetic panels to see if you're at risk for certain cancers. And we should be doing different surveillance modeling for when someone should have a colonoscopy actually based on hereditary risks, genetic risks, environmental risks. And that's where precision medicine will start allowing us to use these data points, use AI to put people in different funnels and get better health outcomes. Because right now we have these public health recommendations that are quite crude and we have the information where we can start making reference ranges and surveillance uh, monitoring for each person more personalized. Thank you. May I add something? Uh, the clinical decision support, unfortunately, currently, as all you mentioned, is not there yet and is adding alert exhaustion on clinician. So, and sometimes, I mean, we turn them off simply just because it's not accurate. So we see a little uh, more, uh, you know, improvement, like as uh, Dr. Catherine mentioned, uh, personalizing it per patient, let's say if the patient's heart rate if we set up the system for uh, 65 to whatever number and the patient because of some medication or their health condition, 55, 50, it's okay. I'm just giving an example. 
Don't judge me. I'm not a doctor. But we, we can customize that in a system. Same thing with the blood pressure or other basic um, um, assessment that we do for a patient. It's We are getting there, but definitely currently we have a lot of alert exhaustion and we are turning that clinical decision support off in our system most of the time. Thank you. So to answer Cal's question from earlier with all of these opinions, clearly... So, again, I'll try to answer it by summarizing, but clearly there, there is some work ahead for clinic, uh, clinical decision support systems. A lot of them today, as Minaz mentioned, are algorithmic and, as Catherine mentioned, are not personalized. And I think that's actually where AI could win. I mean, uh, think about personalized recommendations on Amazon, and uh, you know exactly has anybody, you know, people always think that, oh, Google's listening to me, which is why it's asking me to, you know, buy this one thing. It's not that Google's listening to you. It's like Olu said, you know, like an hour ago, they actually know what you want because of the way that you're going to the internet and doing things. And so I, I'm telling you right now, this is my opinion, that uh, clinical decision support will not only be equivalent to doctors in terms of diagnostic and therapeutic ability, it might actually supersede them, but nobody, no AI, in my opinion, today, and again, people overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term, you know, I don't expect AI to be able to establish a doctor-patient relationship and be able to get that information. But Cal, if I was looking at you, and this is not financial advice, I'd be looking at some of these AI-based systems, I believe, specifically in personalizing recommendations for a patient. Uh, that's where the real meat is. Exactly what you were saying, taking multimodality data, understanding the, the clinical situation and the clinical goals of the patient, as long as the patient, the doctor can help get that information and the system can gather that data. What AI can do with that, in my opinion, at some point, probably in the next two to three years, will be superior to what doctors do today in terms of just how we make decisions. Um, I don't think how we ch get behavior change and all these things will happen through AI anytime soon. But again, that's just you the, know in the, the in the in the short term though, I'm so grateful for Dr. Rizwan at the Oxford uh, Hospital. I just found out he's at the Oxford. Uh, I, I I need I I totally trust. I wouldn't trust anything other than uh, these amazing doctors that are uh, uh, you know cardiologists and things at the Oxford Hospital system. So we get kind of get futuristic here, but personally. Whilst I, I can see that happening, and, and I, I mean, it feels logical that it, what you just said is going to happen. And two to three years, you know, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's five years, but it's pretty soon. And, uh, but but uh, it's just so grateful for the doctors that are there at these hospitals, though. And uh, um, ho hopefully I don't have to see the cardiologist soon, but, <laughs> but uh, nice <laughs> to meet you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... Uh... Pirak, we're going to give it back to you. I think we're going to go into the COVID stories. So buckle yeah, up. I mean, honestly, I just love just listening to everyone talk because now I just get to like take everyone's opinions and be like, say them out loud. And I just feel because I will be smarter for it. So thanks for that. Um, sorry. Uh, sorry. Just before you we go to COVID, yeah, please, I just want go ahead. a slight update about trimetazidine. So because um, I know a little bit about it. So trimetazidine is a an angina drug, it's been around since the 1960s, used in mainland France, Asia and Africa. It's not licensed in the UK or North America. Uh, it's, it's very safe. It's been used in millions of people with, um, uh, for angina. We've actually got a, we're running a couple of trials in Oxford on a 
related compound um, in heart disease. Um, uh, but um, and there's a there's a trial in the Netherlands called doping heart failure uh, using trimetazidine. So the reason I, I raise it is um, it's used. What it does is it changes the fuel of the heart from fat to sugar to glucose, which improves the efficiency to generate electric uh, energy, and it's advantageous in aerobic um, activities, endurance, um, cycling, uh, uh, football, and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised about. Um, I have to. I'm, I'm more than a little bit surprised. Uh, that it's been used in ice skating, uh, I, I, but I, I imagine there there is some aerobic activity. But it, it's um, to to get access to trimetazidine um, in a fifteen year old. It is pretty unusual, and um, I would. Uh, it doesn't quite make sense. I'm yeah, sure. not in Russia Why though. Do that? Uh, in not in Russia, Russia not though. Not trying to be. It's not the drug of choice, I mean. It's not the drug of choice. I would, I would have gone for something else, frankly, rather than trimetazidine. <laughs> that's, that's my point. But it, well, it's in Russia, funny. specifically in the Winter Olympics, I don't know if you guys remember, but um, uh, Russia, Russian bobsledder, uh, Nadezda, oh, I don't know how to say the name, Nadezda, I think is how you say it, uh, uh, Sergeva, also was found to use TMZ. And this uh, was last previous. Olympics, right? This, this was, was not... the last Olympics. Yeah, exactly. This is like a recurrent thing. It's a there's there's you know... one Russian doctor out there making a killing on this medication, probably. And so the question <laughs> no, I have, and, um, and, and... Dr. Rizwan, this is a great thing. So we talked about this story. This is the drug that the global skater test uh, that the teen skater tested positive for, and now is you know drawing a lot of wrath because it was banned at the Olympics. Do you think it actually has any like? potential significant advantage like for example we know like epo definitely does right like epo increases red blood cell mass oxygenation all of those things does this drug actually you think change performance enough for it to be uh because i think the skater won gold or something she was on a team that won gold and so could it actually be responsible for that so i'm not familiar with the sport what i can say is that the, um Trimetazidine changes the fuel from fat to sugar, which means that it improves the efficiency to generate energy or ATP by about 11% per, per molecule of oxygen. Um, and that's a paper for about 10 years ago in circulation. And so uh, because of, of that, um, there's more energy that's available. Now, I... And... Uh, yeah, you know, so the, the heart can um, can pump more blood and more oxygen and, and uh, quicker during the activity. So I would presume that can have an effect in skating. Um, I, I, but I, I, I couldn't comment on. I, I don't know enough about the sport to be honest. But that's how it works. Uh, certainly, if it was an endurance sport, um, uh, such as cross country skiing, definitely. Um, and um, uh, uh, athletics, um, other athletics such as uh, uh, the, the shorter race races, definitely would. I'm not. I'm not sure about. I I, I plead ignorance about uh, ice skating. Just one quick note on 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 figure skating. Um, it, it does require endurance, and when you hear the commentary about it, when you watch it, 
one of the things that they note is if a skater can do some of these remarkable, you know, twists late in their program, uh, that scores them very high points. So it, it, it certainly is about endurance. Uh, there's a reason why these uh, molecules are on the WADA list, anti-doping, you know, the worldwide anti-doping list. They absolutely have implications for performance. Awesome. Yeah, the only reason I ask is because I, I was not aware of this one. I know we always learn about EPO, right? That's the one that's gotten really infamous. Uh, but this is good to know. So thank you, everyone. I, I sorry to pay, oh, Go ahead, Iram, please. A quick note about trimetazine. Uh, my dad, I took care of my dad uh, with diabetes and angina, then a couple of myocardial infarction, uh, and later on uh, around less than 40% of EF. In, um, because of ventricular dysfunction and apical echinacea that he suffered. Um, and this medicine not only helped improve his EF over time, uh, but also helped with his diabetes symptoms. And in terms of number chasing, like Dr. Danish was uh, referring to earlier, um, uh, I kind of devised a plan for him. Instead of doing multiple um, blood tests uh, for sugar levels every day, we focused on the diet exercise part more uh, instead of focusing on the number. And that resulted not only improvement in his ejection fraction and improved ventricular function over time, which doctors were pretty surprised, but uh, his uh, diabetic number went down, his insulin uh, use went down, and then he was uh, able to just uh, move on to oral anti-diabetic medication. So uh, this medicine that uh, Dr. Rizwan is referring to is very uh, useful, uh, you know, especially if uh, patients are going for revascularization and have suffered uh, in cardiac uh, myopathy. Uh, so both of these points, I just wanted to um, um, refer to. Thank you. Excellent. Um, I'm going to pivot now to this story, uh, Joe, Joe Rogan. And I, and I only wanted to pivot to this story because, one, we talked about this two weeks ago, and we were so damn ahead of the curve that we should be credited with being ahead of, like, every news media organization. Um, but obviously we weren't, which I'm okay with. But I just wanted to come back to it and double tap because – it was a big deal. Uh, two weeks ago, we were talking about how Joe Rogan had um, someone on the podcast who was saying a lot of things that were questionable at times that needed to be fact-checked regarding COVID-19. Um, and then Spotify had left it on. This podcast was posted onto YouTube. That YouTube uh, whole episode was taken down right away because YouTube has kind of been cracking down on misinformation. And the discussion we had more broadly on this stage was, you know, where is the line between uh, censorship and... Um, uh, free speech, so to speak. Um, so since then, a lot of developments have happened. Joe Rogan has now apologized to Spotify. Um, multiple people have taken their music off of Spotify. I think, Cal, um, you may have retweeted or tweeted one thing about the Spotify CEO making a public statement, which I think was another thing we had explicitly mentioned in our show two weeks ago that we were thinking, like, how is he going to respond to this? So I just want to post this here and see, do you all think this is genuine? Do you actually think this yeah. is meaningful? Yeah. No, I think so. I think, I think that here, here's sort of the other big piece that you didn't mention, which is interesting, uh, is about uh, some of the comments that he made about uh, people of color, specifically black people. Um, I think that definitely got a little bit more attention than the COVID misinformation stuff um, and, or disinformation, depending on how, where you stand with things. But, you know, to be completely fair, 
uh, his initial, I'm going to stay away from that. If that's okay with everybody, if people want to discuss it, we can, um, I think it's important to discuss it if people do want to, but I really wanted to focus on the COVID misinformation and how he reacted and how Spotify has reacted to it. So when you think about it, the COVID disinformation or misinformation from Robert Malone and Peter McCullough, um, on his podcast was com- was largely unchecked. And I think that's what people were saying. They weren't saying, I mean, there were some people that were saying, oh, he shouldn't have them on, have them on his podcast. I think that's kind of silly. Um, I think he should have them on his podcast and then actually interview them instead of just being a sounding board for them, uh, which is what happened. You know, let, ask the tough questions. Ask questions that are actually going to uh, poke holes in their narrative, do your research and actually understand who these people actually are, not just believe them at their word or the word of other people. And I think that's where he got a lot, a lot of issues, which is exactly what he found to be the solution, which is one, Spotify should make sure to say that these statements are not checked because people do believe that show quite more than you would imagine. And then two, he should have competing people on the podcast uh, at the same time so they can actually push back. And I think, you know, a good example of him doing that is actually the podcast that he did with Sanjay Gupta. That was good. I know that some people will say, oh, he was too rough on him. But had he done that to Robert Malone and to Peter McCullough, I think we'd be having a very different conversation. And I think that's what people were upset about. And so his response, which if anybody watched it, you can't watch it and say that it didn't come across um, I mean, you can, but I, 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 when I watched his response to it and the IG uh, thing that he put out, the Instagram response to it, and he said, hey, look, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm an interviewer. I didn't, you know, I, I'm not prepared to be an interviewer at this scale, um, but I'm going to do more research and I'm going to bring experts who disagree with this narrative and, um, you know, and that, that was his response. And I think Spotify's response of saying, hey, we're going to put this out there and we're actually going to make sure that people know uh, what is information and what, what is at risk for misinformation. I think that's okay too. I just don't think that censorship is the answer. It's just not the answer. That, that's what, one thing I do know for a fact, uh, you know, or what I believe to be a fact. I just don't think that cutting, out, uh, cutting it out off of that platform will stop them from building a platform otherwise. It'll just build larger echo chambers. I think. He just realized he wasn't the right modality for it. And as far as the Spotify CEO, I feel bad for the guy. He thought he was gonna—he was making a platform for music, and now suddenly he has to deal with all these other. <laughs> he he, new he woke up one day, and literally, like my job is so different now, and, and that's what we were discussing he, earlier in the week, just in terms yeah, of his keep, leadership keep, jobs. Yeah, but keep in mind, it was—it was the Spotify CEO who decided to pay him a hundred million dollars, so they, they knew what they were getting. It's not like they inherited him. Like he bought, he didn't like buy Spotify and Joe Rogan came with the, you know, came with the company. He went out and got Joe Rogan. So that was a very deliberate oh, yeah, decision. No, no. And the other, yeah, absolutely. Kevin. Okay. No, 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 I yeah, agree. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And the other thing, Prerac, there were only like three musicians who actually pulled their music off because a lot of the musicians, I mean, this is not a medical thing, but a lot of the musicians don't even have the capacity to pull their music off because they've sold it to, you know, to other companies, particularly the bigger stars have sold it. Um, it was a rumor that Barry Manilow was going to pull it off, which he very quickly denied because Barry Manilow had just sold his entire um, catalog for, I mean, it's not disclosed, but I'm guaranteeing you it's between half a billion and a billion dollars. And he can't go back a week later and say, after I sold it to you, 
by the way, can you have, can you pull it off Spotify? So, um, and then a lot of younger, you know, younger musicians, um, uh, the, the labels control what goes on the, on Spotify, not them. So anyway, bye. <laughs> no, absolutely. That's a very good point. Um, any other thoughts on this story? We have other, uh, small COVID stories to hit as well. Um, if not, the one I wanted to pivot to was about uh, pediatric hospitalizations. And I feel like this is something that has not been getting nearly as much um, attention. Just And it's it's not something that we're trying to like fear monger or anything like that. But it's definitely something to just be aware of because um, not many people understand that pediatric, we hear a lot about ICUs being full right now, which is, you know, unfortunate, but that's adult. Um, pediatric ICUs are an even sadder and scarier place, which is usually when kids get really, really sick. And um, this article provides actually a very unique look into a pediatric ICU. Um, and actually, when it tells you, uh, you can actually skip the ad and, and you can get through the paywall, just click on like, you know, bypass it for this time alone. And you can see that more kids are being hospitalized for COVID uh, now compared to any other time in the pandemic. And um, this was actually tweeted to us by Anna Marie, who's a very, very frequent contributor to our stage and uh, is not here currently. But she tweeted this because a lot of people were saying and are continuing to say that COVID has does not affect kids. And actually, this goes hand in hand with the fact that Pfizer also recently pulled their application um, to, to, for vaccines for individuals uh, fewer than five years old, I believe. Right, Dr. Donish? That's correct. And we're going to talk about that story uh, we're going to separate those two stories because the other story is like really incredibly important also. So I'm going to talk about this one because I want to also, like you said, we're not fear mongers here. And so let's talk through this a little bit. So are the absolute numbers of ICU admissions going up amongst children? The answer is correct. Yes, that is actually true. Are we seeing a higher rate of hospitalization amongst children, and Eric uh, Fiegeldang has, uh, has floated that idea, but has been completely torn down by everybody around this. So just wanna not scare people. If you have a child less than five years of age, don't freak out right now. The risk of hospitalizations and deaths is incredibly low, even if they are not vaccinated. I don't wanna scare people, but the best thing you can do for them is to prevent them from getting COVID in the first place. And the way that you do that is by good masking policies, making sure that everybody in the home is masking appropriately when they're leaving the home and hand washing and social distancing when, when, when appropriate. And, you know, I think it's really important to understand that we're not seeing, and I want to be very clear, we're seeing a significant drop in Omicron cases. I have my thoughts behind that. I don't know how real that is in terms of the, the frequency of drop, like the, the, but we've seen this in other countries. So, you know, we can, we can assume it's likely very, very real. And what I mean by real is not that there hasn't been a drop in Omicron cases. There has been a drop in Omicron cases. I think it would be foolish for me not to say, to say that that's not the case. But we also think that, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know as our former president used to say, uh, less testing, less cases. Well, it's, that's not the case anymore. Less testing outside of the home, less cases being recorded, as Edward was speaking about earlier. And I think that's a part of it. But I just want to be clear, Omicron does affect children. It is pretty mild. Children often do not get hospitalized or die from it. Uh, it's very rare. If you do ha have an immunocompromised child, I'd be incredibly careful. There are some kids that are at much higher risk, but we are also seeing children get MISC 
and other sequelae. But I just want to be very clear about this. While we're seeing a rise in hospitalizations and deaths amongst kids, it's because the overall number for Omicron has been so nuts. It's been so high. And so it's not surprising that that's what we will see. It has been so, it's like the, like we were used to say, the pie of people that are getting this is getting bigger, even though the slice is much smaller. Once you increase, you know, it's an ex, you exponentially grow a virus within the community, you're going to have this. And the worst part is that we, not only does Omicron, we have data now that Delta did not provide great protection from Omicron. We actually now have data that Omicron doesn't provide great protection from Omicron, future Omicron. And again, this is not to scare people. This is just to tell them the truth. Um, so what do you do about this, right? And I want to make sure that we actually address what you actually do about this. So what you do about it is, again, if you have a kid younger than five, I know how stressed you are. There's actually a few articles for you on that about how specifically mothers of children under the age of five are really struggling because they feel like they don't have any options. And no one's, you know, like it's as if the FDA or nobody else is listening to them. And they're incredibly stressed because they're, a lot of them who are working moms are trying, like, I have family members who are working moms that are like, I am absolutely exhausted right now. I'm trying to work and take care of the kids. Uh, there's no vaccine yet. There's no relief. If my kid gets this, some doctors are saying, oh, it's like super dangerous. Um, and, and I just feel, I feel for them. So I just wanted to make sure that for anybody that's listening, that's freaking out about this, you can't let panic take over. But you can have good a good faith effort to make sure that you're taking care of your family. And it's, again, masking. Uh, little kids should be masking. Cloth masks don't work great. So we need better masks for children. There's a lot of different options out there. The second thing, uh, actually, we can, we can stop here and actually talk about this. And then I wanted to talk about the FDA. Go ahead, Edward. Well, look, Donish, I would just point out that what everybody knows uh, in terms of masking, schools are, you know, are, are, are aggressively, you know, going, you know, getting, getting out of masking of, 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 or requiring masking for children. Um, you know, and so the, the, what you've said, I think, is very important, but there is a counter force out there uh, in schools and, and certainly businesses, and I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point uh, today, but, um, you know, ma- you know there, is, there is a great, um, you know, backlash now against, against masking in general. Um, and, 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 you know, um, so I think that's really important to keep in mind here. 100%. So what Edward is uh, alluding to in Prerac, <coughs> we, um, we can find uh, an article or two about this, but <coughs> a lot of states are actually lifting. New Jersey is the biggest example of states that are actually lifting their mask mandates inside schools. Um, and uh, there are some of our colleagues that believe that masking for kids actually is not good. The data speaks otherwise. And so I will push back and say that, you know, that children should be masked at schools. Uh, but, you know, there are two sides to this story. And there are people that believe one way or the other. They believe that masks actually do more harm because children are at such low risk. But what they're not taking into account is the risk of long COVID. That is literally the only thing left. If we can show that children have lower rates of long COVID, um, I think I, I could understand sort of a better risk benefit evaluation, but you're right, Edward. If I was a parent of a child that was less than five years of age and I lived in New Jersey um, and they were removing the mask mandate before and then uh, in lieu, 
you know, in lieu of a vaccination for children younger than five years of age, I'd be pretty frustrated right now. It would be well, really, I, really painful. I live in New Jersey, and there are 600 separate school districts in this small, relatively small state. So it's it's going to be kind of the wild west out there from from town to town. One hundred percent. And and so, Eli, but, did you have a thought? It, just a quick point. I'd I'd want to emphasize that kids with asthma also, you know, should be lumped in with the immunocompromised uh, because that is a risk factor for, for in, in adults anyway for for having more problems. And uh, even without uh, uh, specific data on that, being careful in that particular case would also seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, one hundred percent. So. You just alluded to long COVID, so I'm just posting this because Edward shared it earlier. Um, and we, again, long COVID has been a theme that we've kind of revisited because as more time has passed, you learn more about long COVID because it's kind of in the name you, you, since the initial incidents. Um, and, you know, long COVID sufferers are struggling with exercise. This is not something we, that's new to, to most of us. But New York Times just published this one about two days ago, or yeah, actually yesterday, about this aspect of long COVID sticking around. And this is, again, in adults. And Dr. Donish was alluding to this aspect of even in kids, we should just be wary of, of the long-term implications as well. So just, just wanted to put this up there. Yeah, and they don't know why this is happening. Uh, I mean, they're studying it, obviously, but like, like many things with COVID, we, you know, we still don't know why it does certain things to certain people. And it's not all people, obviously, but yeah, concerning. And it's worth pointing out that, you know, every variant can potentially be different. And by the time we figure everything out or as much as, as we can out about one variant, uh, that that wave is over and it's the next wave. So so we, we will never know really the full effects of what's going on. And this is this is why, uh, you know, emphasizing prevention is is uh, so important because we don't want to set ourselves up for uh, problems that we find out about, you know, in two years. And uh, Dr. Danish and Prerak, uh, I read recently that Pfizer approved uh, um, that it uh, is safe to vaccinate children under five years, but there's no general recommendation as of now, but there is a lot of uh, uh, ICU, uh, like uh, overwhelming numbers of pediatric uh, patients being diagnosed with COVID under five. So I'm looking forward to certain guidelines being implemented so we can um, kind of address that issue so actually, the data was interesting. I'm going to share this now. This is a good moment. So just so that we can, uh, Pfizer, so the FDA was trying to fast track Pfizer's vaccine for kids under five, but actually was not able to do so. So uh, sorry, bad news, Aram. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, this week, uh, the FDA and Pfizer actually pulled back and they delayed the authorization of COVID vaccine for children under five years of age. Uh, they're waiting on data on effectiveness and safety of a third dose. So what they said was, hey, the second dose is perhaps safe, uh, but the effectiveness was not high enough. So they wanted to pull back and we don't have the actual data. So, uh, you know, Paul Offit came out, said the fast track plan was based on the assumption uh, on the safety and efficacy of the third dose. And there was this belief that, hey, if the second dose is pretty safe, then we know that the third dose will be pretty safe, but there was some concerns. And so I think, you know, uh, Offit came back and said, you know, I'm, I'm, they're, they're glad that they're waiting until the third dose to 
again, for people that are not aware of the safety and efficacy criteria, the risk versus benefit has to be very, very clear. And if you're working with uh, children under five years of age, uh, uh, and you know, it's hard to fast track something for them uh, because there's so many concerned parents out there and they wanted to make sure that the third dose was safe and effective. And so um, we're looking at months of delay now, for sure, if not much longer. Erica? Yeah, um, uh, I obviously, I, I, my kid is five, was five in October. So I'm, you know, I just squeaked in with my youngest, um, but obviously had friends who have parents who have kids under five. Um, and it's a super stressful time. And they were very much looking forward to this FDA meeting. Um, and I, I just, um, I think I'm preaching to the choir here, but I don't understand the hurry of these states, uh, Michigan included, many counties dropping their, um, I mean, we, we don't have a statewide mask mandate anyway, but many school districts dropping their um, mask mandate um, in a place where just four weeks ago, our hospital systems were completely overwhelmed, um, where in the country, we're still having 3,000 COVID deaths a day, um, where, as you said, the cases are probably being undercounted in most of our locations because of the availability of home tests that are not being confirmed with PCR that are reported to the state. Um, and in places where in the schools, many of these kids um, likely have siblings under five um, or interact with kids under five. So while the kids themselves under five maybe are being kept home or in, um, you know, are in cocooned daycare settings um, and they're being kept safe as safe as possible, they are not interacting in a world where they are completely bubbled. The other concern I have is that my kids are in the 5 to 11 age group where boosters have not yet been approved. And they were vaccinated back, you know, last week, September, first week of October, as soon as uh, the vaccine was approved. Um, and there is no talk that I have heard of boosters being approved for them. And so you also have this group, the teenagers got their boosters, um, the kids that are my kids age got vaccination months ago, uh, perhaps waning immunity. Now they're going to be exposed to more maskless people, perhaps. Um, and I just think we're going to put ourselves or we're setting ourselves up for a spike again. And it, it's so worrisome to me as a parent and a provider and a citizen of the world um, that we're just going to be, I just don't understand the policy decisions that are being made that we have no control over as clinicians. And it's very frustrating. And a, and a few so, things really, oh, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to put out some more numbers. So the week of February 3rd ending, we had 632,000 additional child COVID-19 cases reported. Now this is down from the peak of over 1,150,000 cases reported the week ending January 20th. So the, what we're looking at is a hospitalization rate of about one in 1,000 to almost one in a hundred kids, depending on the comorbidities of the child who get hospitalized. So when we have hundreds of thousands of children being infected a week, it is not surprising that if one in every thousand kids requires an emergency visit, a hospitalization to recover from COVID, you know, those who question, is there an emergency for children to be vaccinated? My answer will always be yes, because these are a preventable hospitalizations. And until we see the FDA issue in EUA, until we know the effective dose for those who are two to four years of age, the best thing we can do is protect the children, follow the CDC and American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines to keep the masks in the schools. Um, where I live in Illinois, 
we are seeing a lot of uh, districts go maskless. And I do expect, actually, I'm not sure what to expect. I, I, we know this is so contagious, it's going to spread fast and cases are going down. But we're probably going to see an uptick and it's going to affect our kids' ability to stay in school. That's just my expectation. Thank you. And please don't minimize, you know, a child being hospitalized. Maybe they don't all die, but the amount of resources required to to manage this um, pandemic for the children right now is, is really difficult. Yeah, I don't think any of us were minimizing it. No, I didn't hear that. I just, I hear that a lot. I mean, on this app, I was called a sicko for discussing pediatric um, immunizations for COVID-19. People saying there's no emergency. Kids don't get sick. This isn't a big deal for kids. Oh, that yeah, is a no. narrative that they are really leaning into big time. So we have to really um, keep reminding people of how callous that is to, to say that, especially from pro-life groups, pro-family groups. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, just to be clear, you know, I think we have, it's such a challenge, right, Catherine, which is you don't want parents to be living in panic for months and months and being like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Let's just get the FDA to approve it, even though we don't have uh, favorable efficacy or any efficacy data on the third shot. And then the other side of it is, hey, uh, you know, uh, be completely callous. You can't be, the answer is somewhere in the middle. The answer is always somewhere in the middle, usually, you know, and so I think like, Ultimately, I think the answer here is, why the hell are we getting rid of masks in schools? Like, what is the actual data to prove that we should get rid of masks in schools? Like, you know, remember last time we removed masking, what happened uh, in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, things didn't go well. Uh, I don't know if y'all remember, but that was like less than a couple of years ago, right? And we learned, we should have learned our lesson. And yet, unfortunately, we haven't. And I think once you remove something, bringing it back from a behavioral perspective is incredibly challenging. Donish, it's school board, uh, you know, members, it's po politicians uh, on many levels. That's what's driving this. You know, it's, it's, and the fact that Omicron is, you know, infections are falling substantially. There, there, there is a kind of a, you know, I'm saying this anecdotally, but there is a collective sigh of relief going on out there and it's spilling over into, you know, what are probably premature decisions about masking in general. 100%. The sigh of relief, it's kind of like, this is the sigh of relief of a boiling frog. Uh, if, if you look at, you know, where uh, um, the mortality rates, and I'm not, not talking about uh, kids, I'm talking about in general. Um, right now, we're, we're having pe more people dying uh, in the United States than, than we ever did uh, during the first wave of the pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of other serious indicators. Um, and it's really... There, there is a campaign, and we discussed this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, there is a campaign to say, "Okay, the pandemic is over. We can move on. We can get back to normal," uh, which is great. Uh, except um, the virus doesn't care, right? Uh, it's going to continue to spread every opportunity it gets. It's going to continue to mutate. In uh, Denmark, the BA two lineage has a new mutation. 
it's uh, for people who care about these details, it's in the open reading frame 3A uh, specific uh, residue H78. Um, and that that seems to be be picking up uh, uh, it's it's up to 30, 30 over 30 percent. I tweeted that. And, um, you know, that means that we're going to see mutant after mutant. And we each time there's a new mutant, we don't know in advance what its properties like are in terms of spread or in terms of, of severity. If severity we're basically uh, playing playing roulette, the more we let this go on, we the more we let it diversify. Um, there was a meta review or excuse me, excuse me, a systematic analysis uh, that was that is being uh, uh, spread on social media for, for people who actually spread papers as opposed to bad news articles um, that uh, looked at a bunch of papers or studies on the effects of lockdowns and the the systematic analysis purported to find that they only had a 0.2 percent uh, uh, effect on reducing mortality. So it turns out when this this uh, study was was uh, um, looked at, and I'm I'm repeating basically what uh, an epidemiologist uh, in Australia um, uh, had to say about it on on Twitter, and I, I uh, retweeted that and tagged uh, Health News uh, on that. But um, the point is, they weighted one particular study. 30 times more than any of the other studies, right? And they actually misinterpreted that study so badly that uh, the authors of that study, you know, said that they've gotten it wrong and questioned their motivations in, in uh, doing this systematic review that they were, you know, trying to support a particular conclusion, which is not how you do science. And um, you know this this kind of thing is going is going to be used again in support of of assertions that we, we can we can forget about uh, um, having restrictions. It's not serious anymore. And even if we try to do anything, they just don't work. Is really the the upshot of this particular uh, uh, meta analysis, which incidentally it bears mentioning that the senior author is an economist at the Cato Institute. So my question about that is, how do we, how do, I mean, you know, part of it is, it's, it's all about communication, obviously, but how do we, you know, move to a place where we, we get people to, you know, understand this, support it, believe it, promote it, um, and, and get out of this sort of cycle we've seen for two years now where, you know, a variant appears, it infects a lot of people, it causes a shutdown on some level, and then it, then it recedes as it's doing now, and we take the masks off and we pretend that, that, that this is, you know, or, or, or hope against hope, that this is, this is, this is it, uh, because people are, quote, so over this. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the thing is that politics and and public health shouldn't be at odds, but unfortunately, they they are, um, and that is that's part of the problem that we have to confront and solve. And I, you know, I wish I had a good answer as to how to do that. I think consistently going 
to the basics of the science that uh, uh, when used correctly, high quality masks definitely do protect the wearer and definitely do reduce spread. Um, that has to be like, you know, one of, one of the, the, the first things that we say over and over, um, especially to counter, uh, you know, re repeated, uh, misinformation to the contrary. Um, because there, there is, there is some of that. There are lots of people, uh, um, talking about how masks are ineffective, but they're relying on data about cloth masks or the surgical masks, which are, you know, up against Omicron, uh, are not that effective. They were, uh, useful against prior variants, but Omicron, you know, has upped its game. And, and the, the only thing for us to do is to up our own game. Uh, and unfortunately we're not really, uh, responding on that level. And Eli is definitely one of the most educated individuals on this, and he just tags us in a lot of inc incredible uh, tweets that let us get you know a mile ahead of whatever's going to be happening in a week or so. So I just retweeted everything you uh, tagged us in, including many of the studies that he cited. So uh, definitely check those out if you want some additional um, information. I think it's very insightful. And I, I will quickly mention one, uh, which was uh, a CDC uh, paper that looked into pre-Omicron, unfortunately, looked into how much uh, N95 masks protect the wearer, and, and it is definitely worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, so wanted to address this because people are going to come across this. This data came, uh, or this news is from this morning at 1.43 in the morning. It was on my list. I am going to to uh, say that look at it and then go to the variance and monitoring list that they said and it's in there. So uh, this is not to scare anybody, but this is just to kind of give people a sense of what is possible um, and perhaps a future variant of concern, but we'll have to just watch and wait. None of us are wishing for it. We'll all have to be very careful. But health officials in the UK are now monitoring COVID strain. Uh, it's called Delta Cron. If people remember, Delta Cron was mentioned uh, weeks ago um, and then was dismissed pretty quickly uh, uh, by the by UK officials. But now the UK Health Security Agency is a uh, uh, report on Friday said that scientists believe it's actually real and that it evolved in a patient who caught both the Omicron and the Delta variants at the same time. And it's unclear if it was actually contracted here in the UK or in the UK, not here, but in the UK, or whether the, the person that contracted it brought it from another country. We also don't know its transmissibility or its severity. Um, and, you know, again, um, there was a, a case at a Cy University of Cyprus uh, where they showed Delta and Omicron variants, you know, coming together to form one variant uh, aptly named Delta Cron, uh, which is, by the way, a super scary name. Uh, but, um, you know. It's like and, a transformer on steroids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a bad. Well, what we're afraid of is that it's going to have the transmissibility of Omicron and the pathogenicity of exactly. Delta. But we, we don't know that yet. 
Um, it's all it's it's also um, spreading in Sweden and uh, and I think it may have been detected in, in Denmark. I'm not 100% certain of that, but um, we do know. So so the earlier report from Cyprus, um, it's still unclear whether that was a, a lab artifact or not, with with samples being uh, contaminated between sequencing runs. But this time, it's it's definitely recombination. And before. Uh, the pandemic, we knew that coronaviruses do recombine in the wild, yep. um, specifically uh, from from a an attenuated coronavirus uh, vaccine for for poultry uh, being found recombined with wild strains of avian coronaviruses. So, uh, if you go, I just pinned the link from the actual UK Health Security Agency. Um, and if you go down, uh, you can click up on that link. Again, we like to have background info so that people don't just take us at our word. Never, ever take anybody on the stage on their word. Always follow up. Always, you know, quote unquote, as the as some people will tell you to do your own research, but do research with good, high quality data. So this is from the government of UK. They, in fact, have no reason to share this. Outside of just uh, the fact that they're an incredibly transparent country when it comes to this and uh, under signals currently under monitoring and investigation, Delta cross Omicron recombinant uh, parentheses UK is the one that they are referring to. This is an important development. Rizwan, since you're uh, the only physician on stage that's in the UK, can you give us a sense of uh, the level of concern in the UK? Is this you know, sort of something that is being talked about yet or is still pretty early out there as well since Friday? Yeah, so it's certainly being talked about. Um, I think it's a little bit too early to tell. Um, um, and I've really got, not got anything else to add. But I mean that uh, the UK islands, um, and so we're probably um, uh, more uh, more likely to, to detect variants earlier than um, other countries. And I can tell you, this is my gut, but if it's already being found in multiple countries, like Eli mentioned, um, uh, and I actually don't think that the Cyprus one was a, a lab error now. I mean, it would be surprising if they got a similar recombinant version uh, through lab error. But the fact that it's in multiple countries, uh, that means that it's at least spreading and that it's in the community likely already uh, in multiple countries also. So just keep an eye out. Don't, uh, don't overestimate this, but please, more importantly, don't underestimate this. And again, uh, it's, that's the thing that we just want to make sure that people recognize. Um, did anybody have, have any comments about this story or any other story before we move yeah, on? Dr. Daz, I was going to ask you, I mean, there's stories out in the last 24, 48 hours. Um, I know there's one in the Washington Post that they're they're, they're all over the place now. Um, this, so this is and this is I guess new information outside of what the Israelis have. So this is not Israeli data. This is not that, Israel. Yeah. No, no, that the uh, no, no, um, that the um, the booster apparently is waning, which is what the Israelis suspected. But there's now independent evidence outside of Israel that the booster, like in a couple of months, it starts to wane. And I know that Pfizer is working on a a new vaccine supposedly more tailored for the omnicrom so um i know you can't answer this question but this is i'm, I'm just thinking out loud which is 
I mean, should you know, should we should we ideally wait until Pfizer comes up with uh, um, another another vaccine that maybe you know is more effective against Omicron, or maybe now they'll have to go back to the drawing uh, board if there's this new variant that combines it with Delta and come up with a combined vaccine and wait for that if they can get it out fast enough rather than you know you know come you know take a fourth booster because I think. If, if it is waning within eight months to a year, particularly with no masking, we're probably going to start seeing some sort of up, upsurge. And then people can, and then the governments in respective governments will have to make a decision. Do you give people boosters of something if, the, if there's an upswing in cases? Right. Yeah, I think just like we said, when Omicron first appeared and if people remember, I got a lot of flack for it actually later. Because, but I said, hey, I'm not going to believe people on their word that there will be significant cross immunity when it comes to the, the boosters until we have the data. And that's just my policy. I think everybody, we don't make public health decisions based on theories. Um, I think we make them, we know masking works, for example. We should make it, uh, you know, that's, that, that should have been the approach. But I guess they had data that I didn't have, right? And so, uh, uh, so they shared the data and the data seemed very promising that boosters, especially within a certain time point, work well for Omicron. But remember, Omicron and uh, a prior infection from Omicron has some protection, but very little against future uh, versions of Omicron. And we actually know that it doesn't even protect incredibly well against itself, which is so infection mediated immunity is not that robust around with Omicron, which is so fascinating in its own way. So, you know, I think ultimately, as we're thinking about boosters and their waning uh, efficacy, I think it, you know, it's not surprising, right? We shouldn't be surprised by that. But I think what Israel's doing is trying to get ahead of it. And they're making much more snap decisions, even sometimes before the data comes, because they know how safe the vaccines actually are. Uh, but I think um, there's, to, to answer your question very plainly, I am not going to say anything about Deltacron until one, we have data on Deltacron. And two, we have actual data that boosters provide uh, safety from hospitalization and deaths with Deltacron. And three, that Deltacron even becomes a variant of concern. I think it's way too early to make those predictions. I think it would be, um, but I, I will say, am I concerned that Deltacron got the worst of both? Yes, I am concerned. And that's why I will continue to mask. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, and again, that's that, because to me, masks are incredibly safe and effective at reducing not only i mean to be completely honest they're more effective in reducing transmission than the vaccines so uh, when it comes to our first line of defense for ourselves our communities and our families especially the little ones i would say masking comes first but that that would be my only how does this change can in terms of your decision making or my decision making i would go even more nuts on masking that's the actual that's what I would do, but I don't know if other people, Erica, did you have a thought? Well, I think it's really important just to say for the audience, like there's no recommendation for anything beyond two primary doses and a booster dose for the mRNA vaccines. And then if you had Janssen first for two doses of an mRNA vaccine to follow. So there's no CDC or FDA recommendation or manufacturer recommendation at this time in our country for any fourth doses, unless you're immunocompromised and that's a separate immunocompromised dose. So I think that's really important to understand understand Ken and for those people in the audience. My understanding also is that in Israel, the fourth dose, like 
rollout stopped after the initial rollout to over 60 in healthcare workers um, because of lack of evidence. Um, it's my, and I am traveling again to Israel in May. And so far, there's no requirement for me as a traveler to get anything beyond just the two doses of a booster. Um, so I, it, it just didn't help. It didn't help. So there's like no boostering out of the Omicron surge. Um, and I'd be really, I, I'm with Dr. Donish, I, I'd be really surprised if boosters end up being our answer. Um, perhaps a completely new vaccine if there's a new variant of concern. Um, but I don't think boosters are going to be our answer. And I just well, Pfizer really and Moderna are working on new vaccines now, and they're actually new vaccines, right? New, new vaccines. vaccines, new 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 right. vaccines. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're working on new ones. And I, I'm surprised you guys. I don't know if you mentioned it. I, I probably should have sent you the article. But apparently, a fight the what Pfizer's doing in terms of setting up their study, a clinical study, apparently is a lot more elaborate than what Moderna is doing. So when these things come out, that's probably going to be something that a lot of people write about about the way that the the, the different studies were structured. Because you know, I think I think Pfizer's using three cohorts yep. and and Moderna's only using two. It's it's it's, it's a it's a different structure. Yeah. So, one question uh, I have. Uh, I, did quickly want to mention um, there are Pfizer trials of uh, variant specific uh, vaccine boosters, and uh, the one for Delta actually showed uh, 400. I, I, I don't have it in front of you. It was something like 487 uh, percent higher neutralizing titers against Omicron. Uh, which is not a, a huge, huge difference, but it's probably a usefully large difference. The other thing that I did want to mention on this is that even though the antibodies wane, and then that means that uh, the, the vaccination is less likely to prevent infection as it wanes, because the vaccines still do pre prevent some, pre some fraction of Omicron infections, um, there is still the T cell response, which does keep people out of the hospital and does reduce mortality up to a hundredfold. And that probably does not wane anywhere as quickly as the antibody levels do. Um, there is, however, uh, there, there are raging debates among immunologists and virologists about how uh, much long-term durable cellular immunity protection natural infection gets. And that kind of spills over to a similar debate about uh, the, the, the T cell immunity due to the vaccines. Uh, but, you know, vaccines are still enormously useful in uh, preventing the medical system from being overwhelmed and from from protecting for protecting people from the very worst effects of disease. But, you know, in terms of stopping the pandemic, they are a force multiplier, not a primary tool. Exactly. Evan? And if I could add... Oh, sorry. Uh, let me, I think Evan had a question, Catherine, and then we'll go to you. Yeah, question and an observation. I mean, we saw with Omicron this you know, exponential growth, yet on the downslope, I noticed it, it is dropping rapidly, but it's not exponentially down. So I don't, I don't know, is there an epidemiologist or a doctor who could speak to, you know, why does this thing take off so much, but yet the downslope is is not also exponential, it's fast. And does that mean we're going to be stuck with like low-level Omicron ad infinitum, you know, or high, you know, low to medium at a high level, and this thing won't just like disappear exponentially? I, I think there's, there's, and, and this is in prior waves as well. It's kind of like 
what does the public health response calibrate to? It's mostly calibrating to preserving hospital capacity. Um, if it, if we were trying to optimize or you know you know minimize uh, how much transmission ongoing transmission there is after a wave, we would hang on with uh, you know whatever restrictions and measures like like indoor mask mandates uh, and and uh, limiting you know uh, uh, um, uh, contact and, and and things like that we would hang on with that for another two or two or three weeks and and you know get it get it down uh, uh, to lower levels but that's not what we're doing in most places in places you know, like Taiwan, especially a couple of weeks ago, I, I you know, when when I was discussing uh, uh, COVID zero, I I really failed to mention the 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 shining example, which is Taiwan, where they don't have huge restrictions, but they do uh, mask very. Uh, there's, there's a high degree of uptake. Um, they're controlling Omicron. It never got, tra even though it got into the country, it never got traction. They are an island. They do, they're very careful about making sure that nobody is bringing it in. Uh, but they've been very successful. China, you know, they, they are willing to adopt uh, much stricter uh, measures, but they're controlling Omicron right now as well. Western Australia, uh, they are seeing the highest uh, daily new case rates than they ever have throughout the, the pandemic, but it's still, you know, in terms of cases per million, it is still very, very low. Evan, also be careful about math, because when you come off a base of zero, right, you're going to go up much faster than you'll go down. It's almost like the stock stocks, right? Stocks go up much faster than they go down. I mean, I mean, in percentage terms, right? I mean, so even even with something, you know, so I'll yeah. just leave it there. Catherine, yeah. did you have a thought? I have a couple. Uh, the first is when we're thinking about boosters, ways that we can support those, especially who are immune compromised, higher risk and looking for immune support as rightfully they should because as we note there's still hundreds of thousands of cases every day this is clearly underreported and we are lacking uh, collective immune protection to really help us get to more endemic from pandemic there are monoclonal antibodies for pre-exposure prophylaxis so GlaxoSmithKline has the EUA out and now Eli Lilly also has um, products too so this would be one way especially for those who cannot make antibodies you know giving them a passive pre-exposure dose um, may help them get through uh, times of surge as well and then we also are looking novavax was submitted for eua to the fda and that may be a nice way too to boost uh, populations who are looking for a more rounded out polyclonal um, antibody response from vaccine. Thank you. Catherine, the, um, just one comment on the um, you know, prophylactic monoclonal antibodies. Yeah, they're there, but they are in incredibly short supply. And, um, you know, patients are really being prioritized in terms of who is eligible for them. Agree, but we are seeing that, um, you know, that was just in December that they were given EUA. So, you know, they're hoping to get hundreds of thousands more doses out towards the spring. So I'm optimistic about that, but still they should appropriately be prioritized. So uh, Raul in the audience uh, sent me a question. I wanted to make sure that I actually addressed it because 
it's a question that a lot of people are asking right now, which is, uh, uh, and uh, the question is more around going to a wedding with kids and how to travel safely. Um, just wanted to make sure to address that uh, because the concern is around the fact that weddings nowadays, especially in certain states, cough, cough, Vegas cough, right? Like uh, in Nevada, they're probably not uh, uh, doing great on masking like they are in other states. And so um, the best thing you can do to protect yourself is to wear a mask, high quality mask, make sure to do that and try to social distance as much as you can. But you know, at the end of the day, uh, people are making these choices every single day and it's not our position to help you make your life decisions. But what, what I can tell you is, um, you know, unfortunately uh, you have two kids that are young uh, below the age of five, so they can't be vaccinated and boosted. But at the same time, what you can do is wear a high quality mask, have your kids wear a high quality mask. I know it sounds scary for a lot of parents, but my sister and her kid uh, wear high quality masks and it's doable. Her kid is uh, younger than five years of age. And so it is doable. There are good high quality masks for children. And so that's the best you can do. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we want to be thoughtful about people and what they're going through in their lives. And it's not my position to tell you whether you should go to a wedding or not. That's your decision. So I uh, just wanted to answer that question for people that are wondering, how do I travel in the middle of a pandemic with children? Uh, avoid it if you can until things subside a little bit. But how much longer are you going to really avoid it? Uh, um, and if you can't avoid it, then, um, you know, just continue really high quality masking. Um, again, uh, trying to be thoughtful of people's lives here. So uh, uh, wanted to give it back to Pre-Rack. Pre-Rack, were there any other stories before ending or are we good to go? Did I lose Pre-Rack? No, I'm here. Sorry, I couldn't find the unmute button. No, <laughs> no, definitely. Uh, that was about all I had. I wanted to make sure we covered everything. And I think we hit COVID on the head, uh, the nail on the head in terms of the big stories. We hit the pulling of the um, the application. Eli, did you have any other last minute? Additions? Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention something that uh, Angela Ryerson, Dr. Angela Ryerson uh, um, tweeted uh, a couple of days ago um, regarding uh, the the usefulness uh, for people who have uh, risk factors for for uh, more more problems, more severe disease, um, to to test early and treat early because flu fluvoxamine uh, um, can be started within the first seven days, and um, you know it's it's widely available and it. Uh, it it can really make uh, I I believe it re reduced um, uh, severe, severe disease by by over a third. So um, uh, you know there there aren't so many tools with Omicron. Oh oh, this does bear mentioning. Um, they're seeing now that uh, um, the the one monoclonal um, that that appeared to work with Omicron is not working with BA two, the the subvariant. Uh, so essentially, if that if that becomes the the dominant subvariant of Omicron, we are potentially in real hey, trouble. Uh, on on that, do you have a study on that, or was that just based on what people are on the public health side? You know, I, I I did see it. I don't have the link uh, okay. like at 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 my fingertips at the moment. I I can try to look at it later to look yeah, for it just, later just today. Send it to us. We'll you. tweet it out from tech news yeah. uh, from uh, health news around the world. Uh, sorry, just wanted to make sure because I, I I hadn't heard that yet. If other people have, please do send tweet it to us. Would love to see that because that's a really important piece of information. Thank you, Eli, so much for sharing. There uh, was a new MAB approved this week, though, right? Or EUA, I mean. 
I'm sorry. There was a new Did monoclonal approved this week or EUA this week. I mean. Oh, with, I missed that as well. With activity against Omicron, I believe. Yeah, it was just approved EUA. I'll um back channel. That was Eli Lilly's product, so it's two separate monoclonals. Um, and then GlaxoSmithKline, we had the um yeah. EUA back in December. Oh, interesting. Okay, well that's good to know. Uh, so there's more, and I think you know it, it bears repeating. We now have early COVID treatments that actually work. So talk to your doctor. So get tested. If you're having any symptoms, get tested as soon as possible. If you're tested positive, go and reach out to your physician. It's important that you reach out to your physician immediately because the, the data shows that it doesn't work that well after a certain amount of time. I believe with fluvoxamine, it's seven days. I believe with Paxlovid. Yeah, five to seven. Uh, and so it's some of the Paxlovid and others is five days. And so it's really important that if you do uh, feel symptomatic, and uh, you're concerned, get to, you know, use your test or get a test as soon as possible. Once, if you do test positive, uh, you know, go to your doctor and ask them about early treatment options and they will give you early treatment options that work like some of the antivirals or the monoclonal antibodies, the ones that actually do work. And then um, also fluvoxamine as a backup or, uh, you know, there are some first line treatments that do work quite well. So excited, exciting times. I think we have a lot of treatment options. I'm still looking for that data on long COVID, but first we got to make sure you stay out of the hospital and, and don't pass away. So, you know, those are the things that we care about most. And then after that, obviously long COVID. So um, I, I did find the, the name of the monoclonal and they do say that it works against BA2. Bebtelovim. Oh, I did that's see that. Eli Lilly. The worst yeah, I just back channeled it to you guys. Yeah. What, by the way, whoever is doing the naming and branding at these pharma companies, I've got to tell you, uh it's it's hard to say these words but bev yeah I, i'm seeing it i'm not gonna try all right well appreciate you all thank you so much for joining us again for another week at health news around the world we're here every sunday where we try our best to keep everything evidence-based and follow us on health news ch and we'll see you see you here next sunday same time same people see ya thank you and uh tweet us your stories if you have them uh help at health news ch over the next week and we will compile them together all right, see everyone. Bye-bye.